tuned to Solace Radio. Brethren, this is the end of the ages. We are the generation that will be going soon on the greater exodus. And the experiences that our ancestors had coming out of Egypt are foretelling, if you will, of things that will be happening to us. Now, if you recount from the story of what happened to them, of these ten tests that they went through in the wilderness, they flunked. They flunked all of them. And in fact, the Lord judged that generation and they died in the wilderness. But the amazing thing that the scripture seems to speak to is that the last generation, somehow, it'll be the first time, it'll be the first time in the history of Israel, we will somehow get it. We will learn the lessons. And as a result, instead of only two leaving Egypt, making it into the promised land, it says you will not be able to number the number of tribulation saints that will make it through the great tribulation, the greater exodus. Now that, to me, uh, personally, is stunning because the scriptures are filled with previous incidents of judgments and things that the people of God have done, and in each case, it's they've failed, and God has had to go further and further with this. But somehow or another... It seems that at the moment when there's the greatest number, somehow we're supposed to learn this. Now, this is really amazing to me because, because when I take spiritual stock of my own walk in the Lord and I look about and I know many brethren, I wonder if we're really ready for those tests. I, I have some serious questions about whether or not uh, that will really happen to us. In fact... I want to pose just a couple of questions to you, and this will show you kind of how the Lord's been working in the camp already here with us. Going to do a little poll. We're all here at the season of joy. We've been here several days enjoying Sukkot. Amen. Lord, we've been having a great time. Amen. I mean, we're having so much time. We're, we're uh, much fun. We're getting tired. But um, I want to pose some questions to you. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to to uh, point anyone out personally. I, I say that sincerely. I'm not trying to point anyone out uh, personally. I don't want anybody to be embarrassed. But I do want to ask some questions, and I want you to have the courage just to raise your hand if those things be true in your experience since you've been here at Sukkot. All right? You're with me? Question number one. In this great holiday we've been enjoying here, how many of you have been offended or have offended someone else in the camp while you've been here for a few days. I mean, offended them to the point of tears. Offended them to the point where someone had the thought, you know, I think I'll leave. I might go leave the camp. We're having a great time, right? How about this question? Now, I know some hands are going to go up on this one. How many of you have been concerned about any of the teaching by various leaders? Concerned enough that you went to another leader to ask them about it or to other brethren to discuss it? I mean, we're in the midst of having a great time, right? But all of that stuff has been bubbling, you know, in the camp, hasn't it? How many of you have heard any mumbling or grumbling Maybe I don't. 
maybe something about it's you're a little too tired or it's a little too cold here or I'm a little hungry. Youth put and put their hands down. How many of you have experienced being a little bit dehydrated? Maybe a slight headache, you know, at various times. Maybe some of you have had a sense that there's a cold coming on. Oh, my, I wouldn't want to catch a cold out here. How many of you have been injured? Well, brethren, I, I don't know if you, if you quite get it, but I, I want to try to clue you in on something. I have been watching this, and I've, I've had a sense of anticipation about this. This is how the Lord teaches you at Sukkot. This is how the Lord teaches us. At Sukkot. You see, when you come out to Sukkot, when you come out to the wilderness, when you get out of your house in the day, it's like a furnace. And at the night, it's like a deep freeze. And it puts you to the test. And the Lord says that when he took the children of Israel out into the wilderness, he suffered them to be hungry. He suffered them to be thirsty. And he tested them to see, well, you said you wanted to come out here and worship me. Let's just see how bad you want to come out here and worship me. And part of the Sukkot experience is to put you into a worship environment and kind of take away some of the creature comforts that you normally have, and especially we Americans have on a daily basis, and to see if you really do want to worship the Lord, see if you really do want to obey the Lord. Just a little simple little test. We're just out here for eight days. The children of Israel were there for 40 years. Every Sukkot, it is my testimony after having organized and led this with a team of people, they've heard me say this every year. At the end of Sukkot, as we're packing up, and we've only been here for eight days, I say, I don't know, have any idea how Moses did this. I have no idea how he did this. And we just got through doing it. I want to share a personal testimony with you of what the Lord um, gave me by way of experience in my life. In the, the years 1991 uh, through 1993, I um, had a very interesting experience with the Lord. I was at, kind of at the height of my aerospace career. I was vice president. When you went to see my office at, in San Diego there, um, you would go to the sixth floor of the engineering building, ride an elevator where you'd meet my secretary, and I had a corner office with glass, plate glass windows on two walls. At one view, I could see the Golden Triangle of San, San Diego. The other view was over Torrey Pines Golf Course. And um, I was at the height of my career. I remember walking in one morning, and the light was streaming, of uh, the morning was streaming there from the east through the eucalyptus trees that we had in the parking lot. And so and it was just a glorious scene. It was kind of misty, and the light was streaming down all the different rays of light. And as I walked in my office, I just heard the Lord, I heard the Spirit of the Lord just distinctly say to me, now I'm going to do something different, Monty. Just clear as could be. And and I knew something was changing. And from that day onward, things didn't go well. I mean, all the successes that I'd been having for many years, just everything started going down just down, step at a time, everything, nothing worked right. And in me, I could sense in my emotions, I could sense it, I could feel it, depression coming, just gloom, just heavy burden coming, just oppression coming. 
And I could tell it because I realized that my taste, I lost my taste. I would eat foods that I knew tasted good, but they just tasted bland. There was no flavor to them. Things that would be good, just there was no good. And it, everything that was beautiful, like color and so forth, to me, it might as well have been black and white. It was just bland. There was just no no joy. Just, just like a heavy blanket. The Lord crippled me. My right leg, my knee crippled me. I spent a year I couldn't walk. A year on a cane and a crutch in pain. My uh, my leg was kind of half stuck right there. I couldn't straighten it, couldn't bend it in. It was a year before I had the surgery that cleaned it out and the Lord gave me my leg back. But I I was crippled. I, I could drive, but I couldn't walk or do any of the other activities I had been doing. It got pretty bad. In fact, um, In 1993, and this was in the third year of it, it was pretty tough for me to get up in the morning. I I would sleep all night. I'd I'd get a full eight hours of sleep, and I would wake up fatigued. I would wake up, and I was tired. I mean, I was like there was no strength. I hurt every joint, every muscle, everything hurt. And I had been to the doctor, and he had diagnosed me with severe depression. And the whole time this is going on, I'm like in a bubble inside, so this can't be right. I mean, I know the Lord, and, 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 and everything should be, I have blessings, and, and everything's going fine. Why is this happening? And I was kind of, you know, guys, you know, kind of tough it out. You know, that, you know, that, that's what we do. We kind of lock up, and we kind of try to tough out through times like that. I remember this one morning. I woke up, and I was just hurting. I mean, I hurt, just pain. And the way I used to wake up and get out of bed in those mornings is um, I would let my legs move off to the edge of the bed, and I had to time it where the gravity is it would pull my legs down off the bed. I would rock up into a sitting position. And if I didn't time it where I sat up when my legs were falling down, see, as an engineer, I'd worked out a system on how to do this. And if I didn't, then I was in pain trying to sit up. And then once I could get to a sitting position, it would take me a couple of more minutes before I would stand. And then I would stand and I would make my way toward the bathroom to try to take a shower and so forth. And I wouldn't feel like I could really function for about two hours. And I would get up and go to work. This was the routine. It was just weighing down on me. I remember this one morning, I, I, I was successful in getting my legs to come off, and, and I rocked myself in the sitting position. And the pain, the ache, was like just sucked the lo- breath out of me. It was like, <clears throat> and something in my spirit welled out in a prayer, and I said, okay, God, what? Enough already. What's the purpose of this lesson? I'm tired of this lesson. Let's learn it. Let's move on to the next. What? And the Lord answered my prayer immediately, and I heard his voice, the spirit of him. And he wasn't very empathetic. And he said, oh, Monty, if you weary with the footman, what will you do with the horseman? At that moment, I understood what the Lord had been doing for three years. He was showing me what you were going to feel in the great tribulation, that the life is being sucked out of you, that the oppression is just weighing on you. And it's almost like there's you, you can't even breathe hardly. 
it'll be that hard. I stood on that day, walked to the restroom to get myself ready, and that was the end of the depression, like that, out of it. Once I understood the purpose, once I understood what the Lord had been doing. And what I've discovered is that the Lord does that to us quite frequently. Not the depression thing like what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about little problems that come into your life. All of a sudden, you're you're plunking along, everything's going fine, but all of a sudden, something starts happening to you. And you got some kind of conflict, some kind of problem. you got a problem with this brother. You know, you got this kind of frustration going on. You're tired. Something's happening, and it's not good. And I have discovered that there is no happenstance in the life of a believer, not when it comes to God. The Lord knows what you're going through. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly what's coming at you. And I have discovered that there's reasons for it. There's purposes for it. You're supposed to be learning from this. That was what the Lord wanted me. He wanted me to learn from that so that I would be able to minister to people who are in that. To this day, I can walk up to a brethren who is in deep depression, walk right up, sit right beside him, look him right in the eye, and they say, no color, right? Nothing tastes good, right? And they look at me in shock like I understand. And I say to him, it won't last. It's temporal. There's hope. The Lord knows you're in it. He'll take you out of it. Just be patient. You'll make it. And that's what we'll have to say to one another when we're in the great tribulation. It's temporal. It won't last. You'll make it. Hang in there. The children of Israel went into the wilderness and had a whole series of interesting things happen to them. A lot was working against them. The Lord purposed it. The Lord allowed it to happen. It said, I suffered them to be hungry. I suffered them to be thirsty so that I could test them to see if they will obey my commandments and follow my voice. Because you need to know, rather than just verbalize, you need to know you're going to do it. You need to have confidence in the Lord, in your walk. You need to know this. You need to have this strength. You remember Reggie sharing with us this experience of his coach, trying to teach him to be tough, you know, to get tougher, you know, to, to, to get his spirit up, get his strength up, his inner strength up, you know, to deal with it. The reason is that coach knew that if he was going to be successful, if he was going to be going forward, he was going to have to play bigger and tougher guys and tougher games in the future. Now, at that time, I'm sure they had no idea that Reggie was going to be one day a Super Bowl champion. But there's a lot of battles and a lot of games that got to be played before you ever get to that. And, brethren, there's a lot of experiences that we're going to be experiencing before we get to the kingdom. We as a community, as a camp, we're going to go through a lot of different things. And if I were to tell you of them right now specifically, you know what? None of you would sign up to do this. If, if they had told Reggie the pain that he was going to feel, the difficulties, the work that he would have to do in advance of him learning and going in and training and so forth, he wouldn't have done it. Nobody would do it. Nobody makes that kind of a decision to do that. The children of Israel were in Egypt. They wanted to go to the promised land. The Lord allowed them to hold on to that to have that hope and so forth. But the real plan was when Moses got there, they're going to go to the wilderness. They're going to go to the mountain. 
they're going to have this incredible experience. They're going to a place where there's no food or water. No food or water. I'm a logistics engineer. If I'd have been back there, I would have said, Moses, what, what food and water were you planning on us using? Moses didn't know the answer. Moses just knew he was supposed to lead him there. He didn't have the answer. By the way, none of us have the answers in place right now for what we're going to be experiencing. But I do know this. In the end, we'll be in the promised land. In the promised land of the kingdom. Now, I believe... I believe that the Lord has given us a pattern, though, some foreshadowing, and I think the reason why he has, and this may be the reason why we're going to be that generation that will make it when the others didn't. I I likened it unto this. It's one thing to go into a class and, uh, and, and take a test and flunk. It's a whole other thing to have the test in advance then go into the class and take the test. In fact, quite honestly, brethren, if we don't get an A on this test, there's something wrong with us. Because we got all the test questions. And we got all the answers. We know exactly what the test is going to be, and we know exactly what the answers are. And tonight, I want to give you a preview of the test. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22, it says... Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have they put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. This is the moment. Are you ready for this? This is the moment Israel has been waiting for. We have left Egypt by great signs and wonders. Ten great judgments. The tenth time they've tested the Lord and the tenth test was... We don't want to go to the promised land. In fact, what they said, let me read it for you from Numbers 14 and verse 1. Then all the congregation lift up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? In verse 4 he said, And so they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Now I don't know exactly what it was that they saw. All the scripture tells us is what ten men said. See, they'd send the spies in, twelve spies. And ten of those spies came back and gave a bad report. Ten of the twelve came back and gave a bad report. They said, yes, it's a good land. Yes, it's a land flowing full of milk and honey, just like what the Lord said, just like what Moses said. But there's a whole bunch of people already in there. In fact, there's giants in there. There's a, the Anakim, and there's a bunch of Amorites and Amalekites. There was a lot of ites in there. A lot of ites. And you know how ites are. They're, they're terrible. And they didn't actually see them, but these ten guys came back and said about them. And that night, they went from tent to tent, complaining and murmuring amongst themselves. And they worked themselves up into a big case. They, matter of fact, they got people so frustrated, women were bawling. Women were crying in the tents. And they finally came back, and they, the rebellion was breaking out by the next morning. Now, 
mind you, that God had just previously shown himself to be more powerful than the most powerful civilization on the earth at that time, the Egyptians, and had destroyed the choice chariots, the top military weapon in the world at that point, had fed them manna, brought water from a rock, spoken by the mouth of God from the mountain, terrorized the living daylights out of them. And yet they did not believe, they did not believe that he would protect their children and their wives when they go in and fight the enemy. Now, how they compared that and so forth is just beyond us. We just don't get it. But they were so strongly worked up that they flat rejected the promised land. They flat said, no, we ain't going. We refuse. And so the Lord put a judgment on that generation. He said, okay, according to what you've said, you said it would be better to die in the wilderness. So you will die in the wilderness. Every one of you that's numbered from the age of 20 and up that we numbered before, you will die in the wilderness. None of you will go in. And I, the Lord, will take your children and we will go take the land. Now, it says that they later, they kind of repented and they attempted to go in. And, the, and Moses warned him, he says, don't do it. The Lord's not with you. Well, they thought they'd go ahead and do it themselves. And they went in, they got their tails kicked. I mean, they absolutely got chased back by all the ites and the Malachites and Amorites. And so it just chased them right over the hills, right on back, slaughtered them. And the Lord said, pack up, head on south. We're going back to the wilderness. You're not ready. Now, that was the tenth test. What were the previous nine? Before we go to look at the previous nine, let me tell you, brethren, this is going to be one of the tests in the Great Tribulation. One of the tests is there's going to be some people that are going to rise up and say, I don't want to go to the Millennial Kingdom. They'll be in our camp. They will say, I don't care if God's coming back. I don't want to be there. I don't want to live with the Lord in the kingdom. I've had enough. I've had it. I'm too afraid. Too much. They're worn out. They're oppressed. They're frustrated. And they'll reject even the kingdom. That will be the test. And then we'll find out whether or not, even in the face of that, will we still choose the kingdom. The previous test, I'm going to put you on a little journey through Scripture now. And let's go back and look at the previous tests, up to that tenth test. test. The tests are actually grouped, these ten tests. Five have to do with belief, and five have to do with disobedience. Belief and disobedience. In other words, what you actually think, what you actually believe, versus what you actually do. Test number one. And these are put in the form of, these are put in the form of, I'm going to make them first person to you. Because this is the test that we're going to feel. This is the test that we will be facing. So, while we're going to use the model of the exodus out of Egypt, we're going to put it in the context of us at the end of the age. You and I. Let's see if, how ready we are. Do you believe that the Lord really will save you in the great tribulation? We say yes. But I would remind you of what happened to the children of Israel. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. In Exodus in chapter 14, 
They have already been led out of the city of Ramesses. They've begun their journey, and they approach the Red Sea, and they're stuck. They've gone out, and they're stuck. There's three things. There's a mountain here. There's the Red Sea here, and Pharaoh's chariots are right there, and there's no place to go. That is not a comfortable position to be in. And the people are about to stampede each other. The scripture reads for us from Exodus 14, beginning at verse 10. And Pharaoh drew near. The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there is no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? Brethren, when the great tribulation begins, the word will go out that we're getting ready to leave the cities. The word will go out to the brethren. You will have arguments with people. They would say, look, it would be better to stay in the city. Wouldn't it be better to stay in the city? And you'll say, no, 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 you need to get out. See, it's after the greater exodus. We're going to go out here in our sukkahs. We're going to go out and camp. This will be where safety's at. And he said, safety? You mean you mean being in a tent will be safer than being here in the city? And you'll say, yes. And they'll argue with you. Some will finally come. Some will come. And the first time that we think that that famed one world government led by the Antichrist is coming out to get us, then you will have people rising up in the camp saying, man, I told you we should have stayed in the cities. They're going to get us. Now, just to show you how confident we are right now in the Lord, if a black helicopter were to fly over this camp, I guarantee you a half of you would panic. Isn't that right? If you saw some government troops drive up and they had UN on the side of the Humvee, what would you think? Huh? Would you be concerned? A bunch of you be saying, I know I should have brought that 12-gauge with me. We know that Pharaoh is coming. We know that the Antichrist, the prophecies say he's going to be coming. He's going to have this mark of the beast business. And if you don't take that, you, you, you can't buy or sell nothing. What, what are we going to do? We're going to be put between a rock and a hard place real quick in this thing. So the first thing right off the bat is going to be the question, well, is the Lord going to save us or not? That will be the first. I mean, I'm not talking about that Sunday school stuff where we come up forward, go to the altar. Oh, yes, Lord, please save me. Okay, great. I'm talking about the real saving. I'm talking about you out here with your family. What, what are we going to do? What are you going to do when you see a hundred people in front of you panic? Are you going to panic? Are you going to follow the herd? Or are you going to believe? Are you still going to believe the Lord when all the brethren go this way and almost trample you? The children of Israel were at a moment, and even though they had seen many things before, even though they had been told and instructed before, they came to the moment where they were faced, where they had their faith had to become real. In that situation, at that moment, on that day, in the day they were having trouble there, that day, not tomorrow, today, we got a problem now. You know what? There's a lot of us that believe that God has done great things for folks in the past, and we believe that God will do great things in the future, but there's very few of us that believe that God will answer us today and do something for us right now. We call that now faith. Now faith is the substance of things not seen. 
now faith. Faith to believe that God will hear your prayer today and deliver you in the day of your trouble, like today. We pass ourselves off as believers pretty much because we believe things of the past and we believe things of the future, but very few of us believe that God can help us today. Let me tell you why I know that's true. Because every time that you have a problem, you go ask some man about it. You don't ask God first. Then the man has to encourage you. Well, have have you prayed about that yet? Have you, have you asked the Lord about that yet? Oh, no, I, hadn't, I didn't think about that. Quite honestly, you didn't think about that because you didn't think the Lord would do anything for you that day. You thought maybe the Lord might do something for that fellow today because he believes, but not you. You have to go find some other man. You see, the children of Israel, even though they heard the voice of God, they prefer to talk to a man. Moses, you go up and talk to God. Whatsoever God says to you, we'll do that. A lot of you don't want to have to deal with the Lord directly. You prefer to deal through someone else and have them deal for you with the Lord. That's what we'd prefer. So when real trouble comes, real difficulties come, it's our natural tendency not to call upon the Lord immediately. It's our natural tendency, go talk to another person. Only when we're in a panic do we then cry out to the Lord. When it's, there's no other choice do we do that. And yet we have the testimony that we believe we're saved by God, that God will save us. But we sure don't demonstrate it very often, do we? I mean, here we believe God will save us, but he can't help us with this problem I've got today. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. I mean, if we really, if, if we really believe he's saved us, then surely he would be interested in these other things too, in helping us with those. Moses stood up and said, stand still and see the salvation of God. And that's what you and I will do when we pass the test. We won't move. We won't flee. We won't be in a panic. We won't be disturbed. Somebody in the camp better say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And you will stand perfectly still, and whatever it is that's oppressing you at that moment, suddenly you will see it just go away. God will take care of it. That'll be test number one. And you will go through it. If you get through it, then you'll get to the next test. And that is, do you believe that the Lord will give you water? Drinking water. Do you believe the Lord will take you to a place where you'll have water? You know, right now in the United States, uh, I heard this from the press report, you know what the hot topic is today, don't you? is the impending fear of a biological attack on the country, that the terrorists have chemical and biological weapons, and it don't take a whole lot of that to wipe a whole lot of us out. The uh, So that you understand what the weapon of a mass destruction is, a weapon of mass destruction of this type, if it's set off in the correct place, the numbers work something like this. On day one, we'll first get the first evidence that there's been a biological attack. That'll because the emergency rooms will suddenly be overwhelmed and the alert will go out that people are getting sick all over the place. By day two, there'll be people dropping dead that won't even be able to make it to the hospital. And by day three, 200 million Americans will be dead. There's only 285 million of us. That's a weapon of mass destruction. And it doesn't stop there. It crosses borders. It's not like a bomb. You know, a bomb goes boom, 
and it's over. You know, you get a dust cloud. But one of these weapons, it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going until it just can't find any more people. That's a weapon of mass destruction. You know, uh, there's a great psalm, Psalm 91. Turn with me there. It's prophetic. Hasn't been fulfilled yet. We've never seen this happen in the earth yet. Wonderful psalm. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on it with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Do you know where the safest place is in the world during a biological attack? Is to be at Sukkot, to be in the tents of the righteous. Because that verse says, it will not come near your tent. And in fact, brethren, um, if we are in the days, if, if this were to happen and, and you're saying, well, what do we do if I'm back in town? Stay in your house. Just stay at your dwelling place where the Lord's welcome at. The Lord's welcome at your house. Just stay right there and watch. That's all you need to do. Just watch. And you'll, and if we have one of those that's like what the scripture says, there in your neighborhood, a thousand on your left and ten thousand at your right hand, but it won't touch you. And then you will see that the Lord is right and his word is true. That if you'll take refuge in him, he knows how to stop disease. He knows how to stop you from inhaling it. He knows how to keep you clean. He knows how to prevent that from reaching and touching you. Now, we live in interesting days. Either our God is true or we're in trouble. We really don't have a lot of choice about this. It's time to believe. It's time to believe that God does have a great plan. We're part of the plan, and let's get with the program so that we'll live. The children of Israel, that's what they were confronted with in these tests. They didn't have any choice. You can't go back to Egypt. There's no place else to go in the wilderness except stay in your tent. And listen to what Moses and the Lord says. So let's resign ourselves to it. Let's do it. Let's complete it. The issue of water is one of the major things that we have in life. And we have to have it. In fact, in this camp, if you haven't been drinking water, you got sick. You got a headache right off the bat, and you got sick. You got to have water. And the Lord knows you got to have water. In fact, most of your body is water. It's one of the major things that you got to have. In fact, one of the things that we know, we got to have shelter. We got to have food. We got to have those things. For those of you who've ever taken any survival training, one of the things that you learn is shelter, water, then food. 
If you don't get shelter within a couple hours, you could die of exposure. If you don't get uh, water within at least two days, you could die. If you don't get food within two weeks, you're in trouble. You know, it kind of works down that way. It's a real simple priority system. The Lord offers his shelter. The Lord says, I know you need water. I'll get you water. The children of Israel went into the wilderness. They couldn't find any water. You're not supposed to find water in the wilderness. You know that? That's the reason why they call it the wilderness. In fact, this is the definition of wilderness. Anywhere you go in the world, this is the known definition of wilderness. You take one bucket of water, you walk out to wherever you think it's wilderness, dump the bucket of water, reach down with a cloth, try to get some of the water, and wet your lips and your tongue so that you can quench your thirst. And if you can't get enough water off the ground, you just dump the bucket of it, that's the wilderness. Because the wilderness will drink a bucket of water faster than you can get enough up to your lips. That's the definition of the wilderness. It sucks water away. There is no water. Look with me now to Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went out three days into the wilderness and found no water. You remember what I told you? Two days, no water. That's the basic rules. They went three. They suffered thirst. See, anybody can kind of basically go two days, but they went three. They're hurting for water. And when they came to Merah, they could not drink the waters of Merah because they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. So the people grumbled at Moses and saying, what shall we drink? And you will too. You will go out and you will be in the camp and people will be crying out and saying, what shall we drink? And you'll be without water three days. Three days. You're going to face this test. The Lord will give you water to drink, but he's going to test you. So we might as well resign ourselves to it that this is what we're going to get through. You know, one of the neat things about get really getting through a problem is if you know when the end is. You know, if you really know when the end is, then, then you'll get through it. If you don't know, if you know for sure you're going to get the water after three days, you'll make it. It's, it's when you don't know that it's really hard. It's when, when you have no hope, you, you don't have anything to cling to, to hold on to. When you're waiting, 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 and you don't know when the end will be. The Lord has defined the number of days in the Great Tribulation for us. 1,290 days from the very first start. That's the number of days in the Tribulation. It's about three and a half years. You will count the days down. I believe that I will hear these words sometime during the Great Tribulation. Cheer up, Monty. There's only a thousand days left. When I was in the military, and those of you who've been in the military before, one of the things that you, when you, that you do when you're in the military is you want to get out of the military. And um, about the time that you get down to where you're getting ready to get out of the military, why they have what's called a short-timers calendar. and People come with these ingenious ways to help to encourage themselves to hang in there and keep going and, and uh, so forth. And uh, typically, when a guy gets down to like he's only got one month left, why they call it 30 days and a wake-up. i just got to be 30 more days, and then i got to wake up one time, and then that's it. I'm out of here. And they call it a short-timers calendar. And every once in a while, I remember one fellow told me he was, he was getting short. He, he didn't have too much long, too much time to go. And he described how short he was, and he said, he said, I was slept on a dime last night, and I jumped off the bed, and I had to free fall ten minutes before I hit my chute. That's how short I am. 
you know, we need to get a short-timers attitude when we go into the Great Tribulation. We need to count it down. Count it down. Not how much more that we have to do, but how much we don't have to do. And how we're going to make it. And encourage one another. All along, we're going to make it. Don't let it wear us down and oppress us. Keep going. The Lord's given us that number so that we can be encouraged, so we know we'll make it. Next question is, well, if we're going to get water, what about food? Do you believe that the Lord will give you food to eat in the Great Tribulation when there's no crops being grown? Three and a half years. No more semi-trucks coming to Albertsons and Winn-Dixie and all that right here in America. You do know that in our communities, all you have to do is try, stop those semi-trucks for two days and the shelves are empty. You stop them for two weeks and you'll have anarchy in every city in this country. It'll be anarchy. Brethren, we live in a very interesting civilization. From the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado, this is Solace Radio. The civilization that we live in, the difference between what we live in now, civilization, and total anarchy in your neighborhood is a very thin blue-gray line called the local police department. And if they get overwhelmed, and they can be overwhelmed very easily, it's every man for himself. And I guarantee you, your neighbors will take that attitude. And that's part of the reason why you and I will need to get out of the cities. Because the great danger will be there. Because those people will go instinctively to a survival of the fittest mode. Here in Oklahoma, on September 11th, when the World Trade Center towers were struck by the airplanes, my son and I were driving in our vehicle, and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, this is only a couple of hours after the event, there were gas lines in Oklahoma in all the major cities, and they were selling gasoline for $5 a gallon. No airplanes hit us here in Oklahoma. There weren't any bombs that went off here. The people panicked that fast. I mean, you know, this is an attack on us. First time we've ever seen such a thing. And Albertsons, they had people down there at the shopping centers, you know, down there raking the shelves. That was in two hours. And nothing had hit us yet. We just heard about something. That's how quickly they responded. And it will happen just as quickly in your communities as well. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 2 through 4, it says this, And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that's what you will hear when we go out at the Great Tribulation. Even if you haul out your extra Y2K wheat in the five-gallon buckets and so forth, it won't last. You take a crowd like this right here, David Ray will tell you, he is hauling the food in by truckloads daily. There's 5,000 meals just being served. We're just, serving, we're just serving supper. Just the numbers, the logistics numbers would wipe out any stocks just like that. And if you don't have a reap supply system, you'll run out real fast. 
And that extra little piece of beef jerky you stuck back in your go bag, that won't last either. In fact, it'll probably be like that bottle of wine we were supposed to use for Hobdelot was back here. I don't know if somebody found it and it's gone. Somebody went back and said, oh, you know, I found the uh, bucket or the bottle at the end of the rainbow. Here it is. Praise God. Now, even more fundamental than water and food will be our concerns. There will be the concern of, is God really with us? Is his presence really with us? Because we all know in our in our spiritual makeup, you know, we, we know we don't make it just with food and water and just because we get away from the enemy. We, we know we won't make it. We, we know God has to be with us. God has to be in this with us. We, we know that. And the children of Israel began to question, even though they left Egypt, is God really with us? Turn with me to Exodus 17. And verse 1, then all of the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. And why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people a little more, and they will stone me? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take it in your hand, your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? For those that are in spiritual leadership, this is the number one question that we always ask whenever we're wondering whether or not we should proceed forward to do so. Does the Lord, is the Lord with us in this? Does the Lord want to do that? If, if we go and do that, is, is the Lord going to be in it? Is the Lord present with us in this? The, you, you will ask that. You'll make it a little while. You'll be going along a little while. Things will be getting on, and and then that then that will be a really serious question. And because you don't see the phenomenology of a miracle happening in front of you every moment, you'll be saying, ah, "Well, I think God's left." You know, I don't see any miracles happening today. And you'll look for some phenomenology. You'll look for some hook, some handle, and He's just being patient and watching you. And and you'll get agitated, and you'll get nervous, and and you'll get upset, and, and the next thing you know, you'll be talking to somebody else, and somebody else will agree with you, and that obviously confirms the truth. So I must be thinking right, because somebody agrees with me. Get a couple of you to agree together, and you're ready to stone Moses, ready to take on the leadership. The children of Israel had to face a tremendous uh, dilemma in this regard of answering the question. And you have to know you have to know that the Lord's with you, present, that he knows you're there and his presence is with you. And one of the things that we try to stress and we try to teach to you, the Lord says 
that he's in the camp. He emphatically says that to you. I'm in the camp. And in fact, in the camp, we've instructed you, keep the camp clean. No indiscreet thing. The Lord says he's there, he's walking around, he's paying attention. You know, we want him to be present in the camp. We'll be challenged and questioned with that. Number five. This is an interesting one. Do you believe that the Lord is the one and only true God? Maybe there's some extras. Maybe we should check in with them. I remember a story of a uh, that was shared with me of a uh, when I was in the Vietnam War. There was a fellow who was uh, uh, shared his testimony with this fellow, and he was agnostic, didn't believe he he uh, didn't want anything to do with God. And a few short months later, uh, they hooked up with each other, but only this time they were in Vietnam. They were in the war zone. And the fellow who'd been sharing his faith walks up, and this guy's got a gold cross hanging off of him. I mean, there's this gold cross on a chain hanging right there on the front. And he walks up, and he wow. He said, I, I talked to you. A couple, you know, have, have you become a believer? He said, yes, I sure have. I said, well, praise God. I mean, tell me about it. And he says, he reached in his pocket and he showed him his rabbit's foot. He said, I got a rabbit's foot. I got this St. Christopher medal. And I got this thing. I'm, I believe. You see, when he was in trouble, when he was in trouble and we was in danger, now he wants to believe. But it, he's not believing in the one true God. He just wants to believe in whoever's got the miracle. One of the things that we learn in, in hospice ministries and hospice ministries are those of us who minister to people who are there for their last hours. They're dying. One of the things that we learn is that when you're coming up to someone who's getting ready to die, they believe. They'll believe in the doctor if they think he's got the miracle. They'll believe in the chaplain if they think he's got the right prayer. They'll believe in whoever, whoever's got the miracle, I need you, I'll believe in you. But believing in just anything doesn't work. Your belief is only well-founded if it's in the Lord. Because he's the only one that can make it happen. So just believing in anything is not going to work. The real question here is, will you believe in the one true God? Because there will be some who will rise up in the camp who will offer, I have the solution for you. Some will rise up in the camp, come with me. I, I will lead you. Let's go this way. Don't Don't follow them. And they will split you off and they will take you out of the camp and you will split away. We do it all the time. It's called church split. Oh, sure. You know, we really believe in the one true God. Even in a time of peace, we don't believe in him. What are we going to do in time of war when we'll believe in anything, when we're put to the test? The children of Israel didn't make it 40 days with Moses out of their midst. He's up on the mountain. They didn't make it 40 days before a bunch of them made a golden calf. And by the way, Aaron helped them. Less than 40 days, they pulled the gold off their earrings and their noses, and they threw it in there, and they melted it down. I've always loved this part of the dialogue when Moses came down and talked to his brother Aaron. I've always thought that was a very interesting conversation. Moses said, Aaron, what in the world were you thinking? What did you do? He said, hey, it wasn't me. I just threw the gold in the fire, and this golden calf jumped out of it. That's what it says. He says, it, it just jumped out of the fire. Sure it did. You, you'll hear similar statements in the camp. I didn't really do it. That's just what happened. 
because you'll believe in anything. Let me tell you something about belief. You know, it's something I've learned about belief. People only do what they really believe in. They only do what they really believe in. Not what they say, but what they do is really what they believe in. And we'll see what you really believe in when we're put to the test. You know, the children of Israel uh, plundered Egypt. They brought the gold out. And the gold got used for two things. One, to make a golden calf. And two, to make the tabernacle with. And there's a whole bunch of you, at least, I don't know if it's here in the camp, but I've met some other brethren. I'll never forget this. I had some brethren come up to me. That's very serious. We were talking about the end times, about the greater exodus and so forth. And this one brother, he said, he came up at the end of the meeting and he said, Monty, can, can I just talk to you for just a quick second? Yep, sure, brother. You know, and, and we have a lot of people who come up that want to speak to me at the end. And he comes up and he's very serious and he looks at me and he says, what do you think? Gold? Silver? Huh? Gold coins, right? That's what I should get, right? Obviously not the stock market. Gold, gold coins, right? Gold, silver, right? Sure, brother. If you want to make a golden calf, that'll, that'll carry. You can melt that down. You can make one of them. The scripture tells us our gold and silver will not deliver us in the great tribulation. The Lord will deliver you. It won't do it. Listen, when we get out amongst the brethren, and it's just us, your gold coins are worthless here. You need something to eat? You got it. You need some help? You got it. You can't pay for it here. How many of you have been ministered to in the camp? Somebody has helped you in the camp, and they wouldn't take any pay for it. How, how, many, how many of you got help? Something happened, and so forth. See, money don't mean nothing here. You can only spend your money back in Egypt. And if you go carrying the gold coins out of there, and you start carrying them into the camp, I'm telling you what's going to happen. There's going to be a great temptation to load up and let's go back to the city. Because I've got all this money, and I can't spend it here. The only place I can spend it is back here in the city. And the people are going to load up and say, hey, uh, I know how we can get saved. Let's go back to the city. And what they're really doing is, I've got money. And we'll say to them, no, no, man, they barricaded. They won't let you back in. No, I know. I'll, I'll pay them. You'll pay with your life. You won't be paying with money. You'll pay with your life when you leave the camp. We'll face that test. The next set of tests are not in the form of belief, but again in the form of disobedience. And they are in the form of a series of rejections. I want you to see what the children of Israel did. There. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, they rejected the very bread that God had given them. The manna. They rejected it. Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 4. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and garlic. And how we, our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to eat except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and it's the appearance of that of bdellium. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in a mortar or boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. 
That means it was deep fried. I would have loved it. I don't know what their problem was. Anything deep fried is fine for me. I've always told the brethren that my two favorite foods are salt and grease, and I like to get it in a variety of ways. You know, the word manna, the word manna uh, means what is it? You know, they saw it and they said, what is it? So they call it manna. What is it? Let me just ask you something, just from the standpoint of contemptuousness and so forth. If you were to walk into your house one evening and your wife is in there preparing something to eat, it's at the supper table and she's at the stove and, and you and uh, you lift up the lid of the pot and you look in there, if, if you were to say to your wife, kind of, what is it? There's a good chance you wouldn't get any of it. And really part of what the word, what is it, bears with it, there was a contemptuous attitude toward it. Mind you, this was bread from heaven. They didn't have to labor for this. They didn't have to plant no seed, harvest no grain, mill anything. All they had to do was gather it up, bring it in, kind of process it into either a cake or boil it or whatever they wanted to have, and, and it tasted deep fried. I wouldn't have been contemptuous toward this at all. But you know what? They rejected it. They complained, and they said, well, we don't have the variety we used to have before. You know, I'm telling you right now, brethren, you are going to hear these words in the camp in these days ahead. Somebody is going to complain about the food that we have at that point. Somehow the Lord will have provided. We'll have some food. We may even have some manna. By the way, Revelation, it says he will give hidden manna to the people. We may have some actual manna. I mean, the stuff that talked about in the Bible. And I guarantee you someone will rise up and complain and said, man, this all we got is this. You know, man, it would be a lot better if we could go back to the city. We could get Burger King and McDonald's and all that stuff. In fact, I took an application to this study uh, several years ago. I, I, when, I, when I was really praying over this and teaching through the Torah portion, I said, I need to understand. I said, Lord, help me. Help me to understand the dynamic here. What, what's really happening? And so I went through this list of all the things that they complained about. Look with me here. Verse 5, we remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Fish. Um, when I did a little study on that, I found out that uh, fish was free in Egypt. Uh, the Egyptians couldn't stand the stuff. They got it from the River Nile they, and from the sea. They'd capture fish and so forth. They used it for fertilizer. I mean, that's what the Egyptians thought of fish. You know, grind the stuff up, make fertilizer out. The, the Israelites were eating Egyptian fertilizer, and they thought it was great. That's, that's what they thought was so great about Egypt, Egyptian fertilizer. And then it goes on, the cucumbers, the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. And in those days, they didn't have big farms. They, they had to grow them themselves. Those were gardens. They were little home gardens that they would grow, that you would grow around there. So they were talking about stuff they had to labor for, you know, to grow. And I'll never forget, I went through this and I said, what's a leek? What's leeks? And I actually went to the store. I actually went to the store and I bought some leeks. You know, the big, big, looked like a green onion, giant green onion. You know, the big stocky thing. And I went looking for a... I went looking for uh, a recipe. I mean, what do, you, what do you do with a leek? You know, 
And um, I made some, um, it's almost like a potato onion soup. It's made with leeks. It's a French soup, a French onion uh, creamy soup. And in fact, the first soup that you had out here to this week was uh, that kind of soup that you can make with leeks in it. It's pretty tasty. Of course, I love onions to begin with. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, taught me how to love on- I eat raw onions. I love onions. So this one I do understand why the Israelites missed those. But you know what? I still, as much as I love onions, I still don't think onions would have been better than manna and salvation and deliverance and freedom and a hope and a future. I think I'd still give up onions for that. Or the melons or the garlic. Now, I did meet a brother who was a garlic freak once. He was here at the camp. Everything that we fixed one night, he had to have extra garlic in it and so forth. Now, I can understand garlic, too. I love garlic. But I'm still willing to give it up. You know, there are some things that you've got in your life right now that are going to come into question. I don't know what it is. But there's something out there that is going to come into question. You're going to face this test, whether or not you're willing to give that up, you know, to choose the Lord, to choose safety in the camp, and to be delivered by the Lord. We will face that test. And some will reject the food that the Lord has given. Psalms 78, verse 18. Psalm 78 is a parallel passage to the teaching I'm giving you, in which the, the psalmist goes through and kind of elaborates for us this whole process of what Israel did, how they rejected through unbelief and disobedience while in the wilderness. Psalms 78, verse 18 through 20, it reads, And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God, and they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give us bread also? Will he provide the meat for his people? And there came a moment there where they literally cried out and they said, uh, Lord, uh, give us meat, not ask, demanded, demanded. And it's called the graves of the greedy, the graves of the lust. You know, if God is providing If God's going to provide, he's providing food, he's providing water, he's providing bread. Hey, let's just up the menu here. I mean, if he's willing to give us the basics, then let's ask for the stuff that we really want. And the children of Israel went from basic need into what we call wants. And a group of them made demands that uh, they wanted different varieties and, and so forth. They wanted the food of desire rather than the food of need. And there, there will be that test. We'll get to the point where things are working out okay, we're making it and so forth, and then we'll up the ante. We'll say, well, we desire this, and we'll demand of God that, and we'll reject God unless he does it. And we'll kind of all wrap it up into, and if he can't give us what we really want, then we'll reject his presence, and we don't want his salvation. They'll go that far. And that's essentially what the children of Israel did. If you look in Numbers 11, look at verse 20 where he says, when uh, when they asked for this meat, and the Lord said, yes, I'll give them meat. He says, not but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, 
Why did we ever leave Egypt? There was a series of things that we rejected there. We rejected uh, his presence. We rejected his bread. And we even rejected his salvation. I say that directly because the the cross-reference here that talks about that is Psalms 78, verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and fire was kindled against Jacob. Anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. I mean, when it came to what the, the desires of eating of food, they weighed that more than even the presence of God, trusting in God, or even his salvation. They were ready to throw the salvation of God completely away over the issue of what do we get to eat, a certain type of food. The great irony of this is, mind you, and this is the part that's stunning to me, when they came in and they made this complaint, they said, Moses, we want meat. We want the Lord to give us meat. We're not going to take no for an answer. They were standing at the edge of the shores of the Red Sea. They could have organized fishing parties. At their feet was their livestock, was their flocks. If they wanted something to eat, like meat, like lamb chops or something, go out and get one of the lambs, slaughter it, eat it. They already had it, but no. Their position was, what's ours is ours, what's yours we'll negotiate for. I mean, that kind of greedy. Sometimes. When people get into the greedy state, they don't even recognize the things they already do have. They think they got to have more. It'll get that bad. Well, the Lord will have already provided. We'll already have some of the resources, but we won't want those. We'll want more. And that's the reason why the Lord said, yes, I will give them meat to eat. I'll give them a month's worth of meat. I'll make it come running out of their nostrils. I'll make them vomit it. I'll give it to him. In fact, that's exactly what the Lord did. He brought the quail to him, and they went out, they captured him, and they brought him back. And the first people that touched that, that moment it touched their teeth, they died. They died. The moment the people who were patient and didn't eat lived, who weren't following after their greedy desires. And if you have greedy desires and you decide you want to tool one of those power plays on God, you're going to lose that game. That will be a test in the wilderness. That will be a test in the great tribulation. Number nine, will you reject God's anointed? Numbers chapter 12, please. Verse one, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. And as a result, Miriam got to spend a week out of the camp with leprosy. Now, you got to understand a little background about this. Moses married a Cushite woman. You know what a Cushite woman is? A black woman. A black woman. Moses married a black woman. And the family got upset. Moses is God's anointed. And they thought they were well within their rights to take him on. So you know what they decided to do? While they had a dispute with him about that, they elevated to the level of the whole spiritual level to challenge his authority, his call, and his anointing over it. And they got in serious big-time trouble over it. 
And this is a very common lesson for those of us in spiritual leadership. One of the great fears that we have in leading the congregation is that we are always trying to lead in such a manner so as that we don't incite the brethren to come against God's anointing in our life. You know, don't don't come challenging the authority that God. I mean, I understand I'm I'm a man and I make mistakes and I'm, I'll be happy to correct those things. But don't challenge the anointing because you won't win that one. The Lord will show will settle that one. I'm just like any other leader in a congregation. I've had the experience of uh, some brethren coming and uh, deciding they didn't like my style or they didn't like how I was ministering or operating, or they weren't getting the attention that they wanted, whatever it was. And so they came and agitated and things began to build and so forth. And every year when I teach Torah, which is sometime in the summer, when it comes around, it's like this cycle. We watch the living Torah come around and we watch somebody get agitated in the congregation. And they demonstrate the living Torah to the whole rest of the congregation. Somebody decides to take on the leadership of the congregation. And about the time we come to the teaching of Korah in the Torah cycle, the great rebellion and great mutiny, then the issue gets resolved. They lose. Happens virtually every year, except if I can get a kid to be bar mitzvah on Korah, and then we seem to pass it for the year. Um, anyways, I remember this particular year that we were having some difficulty in our congregation in the past. Those brethren are not with us anymore. In which that they came up, and the complaint they had, it just... It chills went through me when I heard it. The word that they came to me and they said was, you take too much upon yourself, Monty. That was their complaint. You could substitute the word Moses for Monty, and this is a quotation from Scripture. That's what Korah said to Moses. You take too much upon yourself, Moses. It was Korah, really what he wanted, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to run the temple system. He didn't want Aaron. He didn't think Aaron was qualified. He wanted to run it. So he wanted to, so he took on Moses because he knew Moses was supporting Aaron. You know, you can see the organizational behavior and structure there, the little manipulation that's going on in that process. And um, in, in recent times when I had other brethren coming to me and saying these kinds of things, I had been in the habit of trying to teach the principles of leadership and the principles of shepherding in the congregation, and because I'm a Torah teacher, I had been making a lot of reference to the examples of Moses, you know, about how he learned to delegate and other principles about it. And some of my folks got started getting real agitated about this. In fact, the word started going around, and it was being circulated around, says, you know, Mo, uh, Monty is no Moses. You know, Monty's no Moses. Because I kept making reference to Moses about his leadership style and technique, and I was trying to emulate. I was trying to follow those principles. And finally, one day, I felt led of the Lord to try to bring this matter to a conclusion. So I came in and I said, Brethren, I hear it's been reported that I am no Moses. And I said, I am here to agree with you. I am no Moses. And I, I say the same thing right now. I am no Moses. In fact, I'm not worthy to be the dust under Moses' feet. I am no teacher like him, as much as I would desire to be. And I do not have the skills that he had. And so I said to the brethren, I'll make a deal with you. I'll stop making constant reference to the leadership technique of Moses if you guys will quit treating me like Moses. And that kind of cut right to the quick to the situation. Brethren, in the camp, in the Great Tribulation, when we're in the wilderness, there will be an assault on the leadership 
of the camp. There will be an assault on the anointing, whatever it is. It may be the 144,000. It may be a pillar. I don't know. I, you know, the Lord says that he's going to lead us in the camp, and we'll know, and, and we'll know who the leaders are, and we'll know where the anointing is, but there's some brethren that are going to rise up, and they're going to think that they're more qualified, whatever, or this guy's not doing a good job, or what. And they're going to come challenging the anointing. And if you join in with it, you're going to suffer the same results of our ancestors in the wilderness. It will be the same test. Will you reject God's anointed? Now, the tenth test was, again, the rejection of the promised land, the rejection of going into the kingdom. I don't know if you've picked up on this yet or not, but every one of these have to do with the Messiah. You see, the Messiah, brethren, is our Savior. If you reject God's salvation, you reject the Messiah. The Messiah is the living waters that come from the rock. He is the rock of salvation. If you reject the waters, if you don't believe in the waters, you've rejected him. And you don't believe in him. He is the true bread from heaven. If you reject the bread, you've rejected him, the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. If you reject the anointed one, you're rejecting the Messiah. He is the king of the land. If you reject the land, you've rejected his kingdom. Now, the children of Israel before didn't know it was all about the Messiah. We are the people, the last generation at the end. We're the ones that see, have been taught. We've received the promises. We've received the Messiah. We've heard his words. And he's the one that says it was all about him. Because they were learning about salvation and we're the recipients of it. They got it in symbol. We got the substance. Only for us, if we now go out in the great tribulation and we reject and we uh, disbelieve and we disobey, it's a direct affront to the Messiah. Now, we are saying we do believe in the Messiah. The Messiah has saved us. Amen and amen. And this test is going to find out, are we ready to really follow him in the kingdom? And all these tests are going to be measuring us against him. It's not about the water. It's about the Messiah. It's not about the bread. It's about the Messiah. And we're going to have to be spiritually wise to remember that's what the test is. To pass the test. Instead of just lip service to the Messiah, will we do it? Will we really do what we, when we call him Lord? Look with me in Psalms 78 and verse 40. Again, the conclusion, <clears throat> the conclusion of the matter about what was happening in the wilderness, this is how they concluded. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. The word him there is, is referring to the Lord. And grieved him, the Lord, in the desert. And again and again they tested God and pained the Holy One of Israel. And that's what all the tests are about. We want the Messiah. We're hoping the Messiah will save us. He'll provide for us and so forth. Every one of the tests are really measuring us against the Messiah. Do you really want the Messiah? Do you really want him to be your savior? I mean, he's willing to do it, but do you really want him? 
and we're gonna and the Lord will get ready to find out if we really do, if that's who we really want to live with. Let me conclude by taking you to the book of Jude. The book of Jude or Judah only has one chapter, so we just have verses there for it. And in verse five he summarizes and speaks to the situation that we've been speaking to this evening. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And Brother Reggie last night mentioned to you, you know, we have a doctrine running around. In fact, I used to teach it. I was a good Southern Baptist boy. And we taught once saved, always saved. But, but brethren, while I believe in the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb, and its ability to cleanse, and I, and I take nothing away from that, it definitely has the power to save and so forth. I watched my ancestors under the blood of the Passover lamb go into the wilderness and get judged by the exact same God, and some of them didn't make it to the promised land. I would like to hope, and this is my hope, my hope is that God's salvation is so great that when I get to the kingdom, when I get there, I will see my ancestors, that they have been resurrected and raised up, and that they were only examples for us, for us to learn to trust the Lord. But let me make a suggestion to you, which is really what the point of this is. Don't test the Lord on this. Obey. Trust him. Walk with him. Let's just stick to that. I think we'll be better off. I really do. We'll save all that theology stuff for later in the kingdom after we get there. And then we can sit there and argue over how it would have worked. But let's get to the kingdom first. Let's not put any of that to the test here. We need to pass the test the Lord has given us. We don't need to put any more tests before the Lord. We're getting ready to find out who are the real believers, who are the real sons and daughters of Abraham, who are the real citizens of the kingdom. There's going to be one great test here at the end. Now, brethren, there are ten steps to it. Five of believing, five of obedience. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua. The rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. Vinu Makenu, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, for giving us sober minds, minds that are capable to receive your instruction and to grow 
Father, we know that you are teaching us. We know that you are leading us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you for that in Yeshua's name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, you know, I've been doing little spot teachings here and there and praying about the next series because, you know, most of them I like to, to do a series either on a topic or more than anything, taking one of the books of the Bible and just working through it verse by verse. And for some time, a number of people have come to me, number of people, and asked for me to teach on the Epistle to the Galatians. And the reason why they're asking for this is that they're being challenged by maybe brothers and sisters in Messiah who, this is how it usually happens. You're talking, you meet someone, and they go and they hear that you are a believer. And, oh, what's the name of your congregation? Ah, about Yeshua. Ah, about Yeshua. What's that? Oh, that's a Messianic Jewish congregation. Oh, when do you guys meet? We, what time on Sunday do you meet? Well, we don't meet on Sunday. We meet on Saturday. Well, why do you meet on Saturday? It's the Shabbat. And we like to gather and observe the Sabbath and everything. And then they get quiet. Well, you know the Sabbath, that's Old Testament law and it's been done away with. And that it says in the Galatians that the, that those who are dealing with the Torah, dealing with the law, are under a curse. And therefore, you know, you guys by Sabbath or dietary things or Moadim, the feast day, frankly, anything that's Jewish, people will sometimes, your brothers and sisters in Messiah will come at you. And Galatians is one of the books that are used to find little statements from Paul that seemingly on the surface seem to condemn the idea of having Torah in your life. And people will quote those verses. And some of our, most of us have dealt with this for a long time. Uh, the thing that's difficult is that some of the terms that Paul uses are, they don't mean what you think they mean, and it takes time to explain culturally the context of what it means. And so we don't have a quick phrase when people throw out, well, you know, brother, we're not under the law. You know that. We're under the law. Well, I have learned to have some quick phrases so I can have the conversation of what these terms mean. Because under the law, which we're not going to get into today, but we'll eventually, Lord willing, get into what it really means. But I have learned to say things to get people's attention. Like people confront me. Well, Pastor Ralph, you know, we're not under the law, the scripture says. And I go, are we above it? Huh? Are we above the law? See, because the interpretation that people give to being under the law, meaning that you have a responsibility and obligation to keep it. So their interpretation of the word under the law means that, hey, I'm no longer under obligation to teach it. So then I ask them, because they see, because of culture, under the law is such a bad term, right? So I go, are you above the law? Well, in our culture, being above the law is a bad term too. And what is the result of being above the law? That you do not have to keep the law. So both statements, under the law, above the law, carries the idea, people culturally saying that you don't have to keep any of the commandments or any of the laws. So you get their attention. So are you above the law? Um, um, well, um, well, no. Oh, well, maybe under the law doesn't mean what you think it means. Maybe it means something else. 
And maybe we need to dig into Scripture to understand its meaning so that when Paul dealt with the terminology, we understand what he was dealing with and know how to apply it correctly today when we hear the terms 2,000 years removed from Galatia. The whole those congregations who had a particular culture, a particular place, a particular time, certain people, and they had certain ideas and language that we as removed, we really do have to do a little work to try to understand the context these terms we use. Paul writes many times in a way that takes for granted that the people he's writing to understand what he's talking about. And here we come after 2,000 years of church history, go reading it, not paying any attention to the original meaning, and try to think it means what we think it means, and we find out that that's not the case when, as my brother Ben always says, keep reading. Keep reading. So anyway, that's what happens to a lot of us. I know this happens to me all the time. You know, people are like, wow, y'all meet on Saturday? Why do you do that? Don't you know the, the Sabbath was done away with Jesus? And, and, and I said, oh, and he went and replaced it with Sunday? There's another little quick phrase I say to get certain people's attention. Oh, we're not under obligation. Why are we have an obligation to meet on Sunday then? If you're saying we're not under obligation to keep Shabbat, which the scripture so clearly talks about, but I tell you there's nowhere in scripture that commands you to keep the first day of the week. Nowhere. Now you can derive why you think it's important to meet on that day. And frankly, I believe people have liberty to meet on any day they choose to meet on. At Ahava, we don't say, sometimes people make the mistake and think that we, we say these words. Well, you know, we worship God on the right worship day. That's how people think we think. Well, we don't think that way. Because that's foreign thinking to us. You only worship God one day a week? Really? Do you kiss your wife one day a week? Is that what you do as well? I mean, this is the God who created all things and he only gets one day to be worshipped. Well, we know through Torah that worship was an everyday thing. People went to worship God all the time. There's no one day to worship God. That's foreign thinking to the scriptures. It's been a foreign thinking to go to Paul the Apostle. Well, Paul, tell me, what day is the one day we're supposed to worship God? And, and he's not paying attention to you because it's a Tuesday and he's worshiping God. <laughs> and he gets up and says, excuse me, what did you say? Oh, you hang out with Paul and you see every day, every morning, he gets up and worships God. And before the middle of the day, he worshiped God. And before the evening is over, he worshiped God. Oh, you read about Daniel and you read about how he, even in captivity, turn towards Jerusalem three times a day to worship. Every day he did that. Even when there were commands against doing it. When he weren't, wasn't supposed to do it. He said, oh, I'm being committed. There's no temple there right now. It was destroyed. But that is the place. And he would turn towards that place. See, these are some of the things that get thrown at us. And we have to study to show ourselves approved so we can respond 
to these things. So people do respond and they hear about how we live our lives and how we practice. And they think because of the way we live our lives, you know, here's a term that's used a lot. You guys are Judaizing. You're trying to make everybody Jews and you're taking the Torah and forcing people to keep Torah and you're Judaizing by doing that and God says that's wrong. Paul used that term. Okay, yes he did. But what did he mean by it? Did he mean what you think he means? I had a friend, pastor friend, I'd known for years, and we got into a debate concerning certain things like Shabbat and dietary issues and the Torah and the New Covenant. We got into a big debate. We're still friends, but we got into a big debate. And in the middle of the debate, he said, listen here, my friend. I want to let you know that in Jesus, I am free from all the commandments of God. Jesus is my Torah. He's my law. I am in him. And, I, and he set me free from that obligation of keeping the law. There's not one commandment that I'm required. All I got to do is believe in Jesus. I said, hmm. I said, can you do me a favor? He says, what? If you ever move into my neighborhood, let me know ahead of time. Because I want to buy extra locks for my door. I want to get security cameras. I want to make sure I have God some protection on my children. My spouse, I'm going to keep a good eye on her when you're around. Because, see, you say you don't follow any commandments at all. And so I can't trust you. That means you can steal from me. You can lie to me. You can covet my wife, covet my property. You can build an idol in your backyard and worship it. I really don't want you in my neighborhood, brother. Please go somewhere else, my brother. Don't move into my neighborhood because I would have to buy more guns to protect myself from you because you're a very dangerous person because you are without law. You are anti-law. And you are a very dangerous person. And if that's what you believe by being in Jesus, that's what he did for you. That you're now free to live your life any way that you choose to live. And he got my point. It caught his attention. He said, well, brother, that's not what I'm saying. Then what are you saying? Maybe you need to rephrase your statement a different way. Maybe you have accepted a philosophy that's not of the Lord. That's not based on positive things. Maybe you are following traditions that are not rooted in the Word of God, but traditions by men. Now, let me say something about traditions before we get on to Galatians. Sometimes people will condemn you because of traditions. You know, traditions are bad things. You're supposed to follow the Spirit of the law, Spirit of the Lord. Oh, don't have traditions. Traditions are bad. They're bad things. And I think it's funny when I hear people who, who are kind of anti-tradition. We don't have traditions. We don't follow traditions. And I always ask them little things. And again, these are quick answers to people to get them to think. Do y'all have a church service? Yes. What time does your church service meet? Oh, we meet at 11 o'clock every Sunday. Same place? Yes, same place. 
Really? How long is your service? Oh, about an hour and a half service. Hour and a half. Yep, yep, that's what we do. Do you have music at your service? Oh, yes, we always open with some praise music. We do. Really? Always? You always do that? He says, yes, that's what we do. Yes, what are you getting at? I said, so this is your practice. Yes, that's our practice. Could we call your practice your tradition? That you meet on 11 o'clock on Sunday at a certain time and you open up with praise and worship. We have an hour and a half service. And that's pretty much the flow of what you do every week. That is the tradition of your community. And that usually gets their attention as well. I said, look, the Bible doesn't say straight out that traditions are bad. In fact, let me read some things what it says about tradition. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. Some translations say keep the ordinances, but the word there is the same word that's used for traditions everywhere else. So he's literally saying keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. This is Paul talking to Corinthians. Hey guys, remember to keep the traditions as I deliver them to you. Let me give you another one. Second Thessalonians, verse 2 and 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. The epistles themselves are traditions. <laughs> or Second Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command, command, command you, brethren, command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which you received of us. Whoa. Whoa. Strong words. The people part of that community and the apostles came and said, this is how we, this is how we live. This is how we walk. This is what we do. This is our practice. This is our lifestyle. They go, eh. I'm going to live any way I want to live. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to go against the leadership of the community. Because I don't believe in traditions at all. He says, mark them. Don't even have anything to do with them. See, there are traditions that are good. The traditions that are bad are those traditions that make void the Word of God. Those traditions you need to avoid. In Matthew 15, 3, when Yeshua was being confronted about some of the practices that he and his disciples were doing, and accused Yeshua and his disciples for not keeping the tradition of the elders, but he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition. Same thing in Mark 7. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men. And he talks about that. And he goes on and says, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Those are bad traditions. Mark 7.13, he says, making the word of God of none effect through your traditions which you have de 
which you have delivered, and many such like things to you. Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Messiah. So there's some traditions that are bad. I was listening to something on the radio there, on Christian radio. I hope I can find it because I want to see where this guy's going to go with this thing. Very popular Christian pastor. And he was doing a series on why do we do what we do? And he walked through verses about being rooted in the word of God and everything. I was like, I wonder where he's going to go with this. He was saying, you know, there are things that he said this. There are things that have come into the body of Messiah that are not rooted in scripture. And we gotta, we need to, he challenged people, you need to, to, to find those things and get it out. That if your church, your pastor is doing things that can't be backed up by the word of God, he said, you need to get out of it. Now, I'm not gonna name what this ministry is, but I was familiar, I'm familiar with this ministry, and I'm familiar with some of their traditions and some of their customs. And so I'm wondering, how far is he gonna go with this? I said, I gotta find out how to, I'm gonna write this guy, I'm gonna get the address, I'm going to give them a few times to listen to them. I'm going to see if they change some of the things that are on their website for the holiday season of what they had on there. And I'm going to challenge them that maybe some of your traditions, you need to follow your own teaching. So this is important. Years ago, Daniel Juster had the leaders who come in. He taught on a teaching for several hours on culture. And one of the things he's taught about culture, he says, in culture, which pretty much can be summed up as all the things you do, what you eat, how you dress, what days of the week you observe, how you speak, how you greet, how you move, how you dance, all of that expresses your culture. Everybody has culture. Even the people who say they don't have culture have culture. Even the anti-culture people have culture. They have a culture of being anti-culture. They develop practices that are against whatever the prevailing culture is, but that is now their culture. We are against everything else. That's how we define who we are. And Dan says, in every culture, there's good things, there are bad things, and there are neutral things. For example, there's a culture of food. And mostly, if it's in the framework of food, we'll talk about that later today, whether you decide to fry it, bake it, saute it, that's your choice. It's neutral. And you're going to find a scripture that says, you must fry your chicken. No, you can bake your chicken. You can come other ways to cook your chicken. That's a neutral area. What spices you might decide to put on your chicken, that's a neutral area. Now, some of you may say, well, that's good. Well, yeah, I like certain food cooked a certain way, and that's a good thing to me. But frankly, that's neutral biblically. God doesn't say, thou must eat Thai food. I love Thai food. Some of you may not like the spiciness of Thai food. I do. I love it. 
But it's not a salvation issue. It's not a Word of God issue. Some of you are like plain food. You're more European in your approach. And I don't mean Spain. I mean the other part of Europe where they have stuff that, frankly, I find to be tasteless because they don't use a lot of spices. But that's okay. You can do that. But in a culture, there can be bad things. Let's take some of the Asian culture, whether Chinese, Japanese, you know, and other countries, other places, other expressions of the ethnicities that dwell in that land. And you may enjoy the food and maybe even the clothing, but then you start to study the philosophical beliefs on how, who God is and what the world is. And you find some are into ancestry, ancestor worship. Or some believe in many gods. If you get into Hinduism, many, many gods. More than you can count. Well, those are bad things. Because the Torah says, you shall worship Yah and Yah alone and worship no other gods. It might be a beautiful culture. They may do it in a beautiful way. But it has some elements of bad. Not the whole culture. Those aspects of it. And he went on to show that in various things. And it was Dan's way. Dan has always been seeking to embrace people. Made space that, hey, there are a variety of people and cultures and expressions, and we can rejoice in that. Just like we would rejoice that God is the creator of the universe, and he has a lot of diversity and creativity in his creation. What if every only tree we had was an oak tree? That's it. Just oak trees. No, God has... Tons of different types of trees that look beautiful, especially in the fall when you have different trees and the leaves change at different colors and different times. What if they're all just one type of tree? Like, eh, kind of boring. God likes variety. Even look at us as humans, created in the image of God. And yet, just in this room, we see a diversity of appearance and look and expression. That's God. That's the way He is. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing. So every culture has something that can be gleaned from. And you don't just point a culture out. Greek culture is bad. French culture is bad. No, that's not true. Are there things in Greek culture that are wrong? Well, yeah, if you study it now, you can find bad things. But you can find a lot of good things. People say, what about Jewish culture? And sometimes in Messianic Judaism, we don't want to say anything negative about Jewish culture. Okay, you have a right to say that? Yeah, I think I've been here long enough that I have a right to say it. And Dan said it. Dan says, well, there are things in Jewish culture that are not good, that are bad. You go getting into the Zohar and the mysticism, you will find superstitions and practices that are against the Torah. Magical things that you can do. And that's not a good thing. My wife and I was talking recently about some of the symbolism that you can find within Judaism. Just because it's Jewish doesn't mean it's kosher. 
you must discern from the Word of God. If you were to wholeheartedly embrace all of Judaism, you would have to kick Yeshua to the curve. Because traditional Judaism rejects Yeshua as the Messiah. And they have stories about him that were unbelievable. They acknowledge that he did things, that he had power to do things, but they said the way he did it, he snuck to the temple and he he uh, heard the name of God mentioned uh, by the priest and then he sewed that into his skin so he could carry it out so he wouldn't forget it and he pulled it out and he read it and now he knew the name of God and the way he did his miracles, he went around using the name of God. A lot of you didn't know that that's Talmudic teaching, but it's there. Small portion, but it's there. That's not good. But Dan also said, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Much in every way, as it says in Romans. Because unto the Jewish people were given the covenants and the promises and the Torah and the word of God and all the promises associated. Yeshua himself said to a Samaritan woman, we Jews know who we worship. We know. Because salvation is of the Jews. Whoa! Some people wouldn't like to hear that, but it came out of Yeshua's mouth. So there are traditions that are good and there are traditions that are bad. We would expect with Judaism that there would be more traditions that are good because the covenants and the promise and the teachings and all the things that have been given to them. There's a term we use called halacha. It's a Jewish term. It comes out of rabbinical Judaism. Halacha. It literally means the way you go. The way you go. That's what halacha means. The way you go. One way of summarizing, it's how you do things. How you walk, how you talk, what you eat, what you don't eat. What do you do when you wake up? I mean, if you study... Orthodox Judaism, it gets into the minute details of every aspect of your life. The halacha for Orthodox Judaism is based on the Talmud. The Talmud is a set of writings. First, what's called the Mishnah, which is almost like a, if you look at it from a legal aspect, it's a legal statement about what you are to do or not to do. Then you have what's called the Gemara, which I like to view as how they came to that conclusion. It's commentary. It's different rabbis. Even put in there are rabbis who disagree with the final statement. It's a collection of all the arguments and debates that people have and over the one statement. And in Orthodox Judaism, this is the primary structure of study. Not Torah. But Talmud, which has a lot of Torah in it. But that is the structure. And that is the basis for halakha, for Orthodox Judaism. Of telling you what you're to do and what you're not to do. That's how the traditions are developed. Now, people say, what about you guys? Well, as I said, there's no way in a Messianic Judaism could we fully embrace the Talmud. But we do understand that the Talmud is the tradition that's been passed down, and within that Talmud are good things. 
and their expressions of practice that have been captured that date way back to things that were being done even in Yeshua's day. And some of those things are good, and some of the things are not good. The traditions that are not good made the Word of God void. But there were traditions that were good that Yeshua himself kept and walked out and practiced. So that's something we have to, we have to wrestle with that. We don't, with blinders, go in and say, we're going to embrace the Talmud. Nor do we go the other way and say, oh, there's nothing good there. We're going to throw it away and wash it away. When it's the very fabric of the Jewish community that we want to reach for Yeshua. We have to have some understanding of these traditions, these practices, and how to work with them. So when it comes to us and what we embrace in our community, it is through what I like to call New Covenant Eyes that we we approach Torah. We definitely believe that Torah is central to the New Covenant because the Scripture says so. I will write my law upon your hearts and hurt your mind. That's what God said he would do. But he also says, I will make a New Covenant low, not like the one I made before. And sometimes in Messianic circles, we push that under the rug. Because we're so excited about Torah and defending Torah. We get so much attack for Torah that we want to defend it that we forget that God himself says, I'm making a new covenant not like the one I made before which you broke. There is some transition, there's some change that is taking place in how the Torah is applied in the new covenant versus when that covenant was made under Moses. The main one is that it's in your heart. It's in your mind. He's your God. You are his people. He will forgive you. That's the main thrust of that new covenant. Torah dwells inside of you now. Not just decorated on the walls of your house. But inside. Covering your steps by the Ruach, by the Spirit. That's a new covenant thing. But we have to look at it through the reality that the Mashiach has come. Because it changes the way you live. I've always said, what would happen right now if every Orthodox Jew woke up and received the revelation that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? They woke up, and there it is. What would happen in the Orthodox community? That would be change. Their view of the Goyim who've embraced Yeshua will change. Their view of some of their practices will be tested. That will be a change. Well, in Messianic Judaism, that's part of our struggle, that we have the reality that the Mashiach has come. And so we realize that when it comes to binding and loosing, a terminology you've heard before, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's usually heard more among charismatics who can really cast out demons. And I'll be honest with you, that verse has nothing to do with casting out demons. The other verses that deal with demons, unless you bind a strong man, you can't do anything. That's a demonic thing. you got to deal with that demon who has control. Bind that strong man so you can get people released. But the binding and loosing that is used in Scripture that Yeshua promised to his disciples 
has to do with halacha. When something is bound, you are required to do it. When something is loose, you're not under obligation to do it. Now, up until that point, Yeshua said to his disciples, the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. What was the seat of Moses? It's the seat that Moses had outside of the camp that people came to him trying to figure out how to deal with the Torah where they didn't have a clear understanding or application or maybe a new way. We don't know. Can we do this? Can we not do this? We had an argument. We're, we know you, we're just not sure what's the right way to do it. Moses was sitting in the seat, and we remember that in the story. He was sitting from sunrise to sunset in that seat, deciding between people, and it was his uh, father-in-law that came in and said, this is not good. Not good for you and not good for the people. And instructed him, teach people, break them into groups, find captains and leaders, hundred or whatever, and teach them the principles of Torah so they can help bear this with you. And only the hard cases they bring to you, so you don't have to do this all day long. You know, a thrust for plurality of leadership. That doesn't sit on one person. But the Pharisees understood that they had that seat. That they could make decisions of what the way you're to live. What you do and what you're not to do. This is binding and loosing. But Yeshua comes along and says to his disciples, after acknowledging earlier that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, he warns the Pharisees that it will be taken away from them and given to another. And he comes to his disciples and he says, hey, I'm giving you the keys. And whatever you bound on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loose in, in heaven. And we see this in Acts when the disciples have to make a decision concerning what to do with the Gentiles coming into the body of Messiah. They don't run across the street. We need to talk to the Sanhedrin right now. We got an issue here. Yeah, yeah, we're those crazy Jews who believe Yeshua is the Messiah. We got an issue. The Gentiles are coming in. And we need you guys, since you sit in the seat of Moses, make a decision. No, they didn't recognize that anymore. They recognized they had the authority to bind and loose the requirements, and they exercised that and made a decision. And so, as a Messianic community, though we have a sweet, soft part in our heart to the larger Jewish community, we do understand that the authority to make decisions for our community rests within, not without. We have that authority. It's a very important authority. A couple other things. Things to remember in dealing with the book of Galatians, which we're going to just scratch the surface of today, as you see. Things to remember. Number one, we are 2,000 years removed from when this letter was written. Let me say it again. We are 2,000 years removed from when this letter was written. Therefore, we have to endeavor to have some understanding of the players and the culture of that time. we got to remember that. That takes a little study, research, 
You say, well, why is that important? Because if you don't know the players and the culture, then you will try to interpret things 2,000 years removed and how we use terminology today. There are things we hear today that wouldn't have been said in those days. Here's one. This is a little simple one. And I hear it all the time, and it gets me angry when I hear it whether from different communities. Jews don't believe in Jesus. How many believe that? Obviously, the Jewish people in here don't believe that. But it's a statement that's said all the time, whether it comes from the church world or whether it comes from the larger Jewish world. Jews don't believe in Jesus. Really? Then who were all those 12 disciples following him around all that time? Who were those people when the Holy Spirit was pulled out on Shavuot, a Jewish Moed? Who were those 3,000 that were added in that one day? Who were the apostles? And why did they have this huge meeting in Acts 15 to discuss the Goyim coming into this movement of Jewish people if Jews don't believe in Jesus? Who wrote the New Testament anyway? Oh, Jewish people. That sounds like a small thing. Oh, you're making a fine point. Yeah, I am. Because the philosophy of the day, I hear it all the time. I hear it from anti-missionaries. You know, they just write, well, you know, you know, this, this, these messianic groups, these Jews for Jesus, all these guys, they, they are, they're, they're muttering the issue between Christianity and Judaism because Jews don't believe in Jesus. And that's not true. It's not true at all. So we have to realize that. That when you approach this book of Galatians, we gotta dig through 2,000 years and try to understand what was going on to have a good understanding, interpretation. Second thing to remember. Paul was raised as a Pharisee and in one place still considered himself to be one. So I am a Pharisee. He was not a fisherman. Or they, or as the other disciples were, kind of common Jewish people. He was a very learned Jewish man, raised a Pharisee, very committed to Torah, the study of Torah, of course, from the oral tradition that later became the Talmud. That is how he would have been raised. So he would look, he would look through traditions of the elders. He would look to Torah through the practices that were being taught to him through oral tradition. But make no mistake about it. He spent a lot of energy and a lot of time studying. And not only Jewish traditions did he study, but he was a very learned man in Greek culture. We know this from the book of Acts when he goes to talk at Mars Hill and he says to them, as your poets say, they say this. How do you know that? Well, he studied the Greek poets. He spoke Greek. He spoke Hebrew. He was a very learned man. He had his Roman citizenship. Very educated person. It's nice to be around very educated people. We get excited. We, we think of people who are very educated today. We like, we like a lot. You know, we, when we hear them, when they approach things, you know, like a Dr. Michael Brown, you know, like, oh man, this guy, a Dan Juster, very educated man. Just what he's able to bring forth in history and knowledge. We respect that. We really do. It's important. We need to say this about Paul 
because Paul, especially being trained in the rabbinical tradition of the oral law, Paul didn't discard it all. He used it. He knew the terminology that was used among the people that he was talking to. And he used that terminology knowing that the people he was talking to understood those things. Now, we don't always understand those things. And that's why we have to study. And he uses terms like works of law, under the law. It meant something. Maybe not what we think it means, but it meant something. And we have to understand it within that thrust and culture. And there are people who are doing some laboring work today. One guy is by the name of Mark Nanos, who's done some amazing amount of study into some of these things and bringing out some things that a lot of people are not aware of. But we want to remember that. The other thing is we've got to remember Second Peter, third chapter, verse 15 and 16. Peter warns, hey, watch out. There are people who are coming who will twist the teaching, especially the teaching of our brother Paul, who some of the things he writes are hard to understand, which people wrestle to their own destruction. Paul's not a surface writer. He's not a, excuse me how I'm going to say this, he's not a, Jesus loved me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. That's good to know that. But he's going to get underneath that deeply of what that means and all the terminology and understanding of that. So keep that in mind when we approach this book. Because it will have impact on us. These are all the frameworks in preparing for this book. Don't forget, here's the third thing. Don't forget in other places in scripture what Paul has to say about the law. Because we're going to hear some things in Galatians that on the surface is going to sound one way. But if you remember other things he said about it, it will make you take pause and say, hold it. He can't mean that because that would contradict what he says over here. Let me give you some of them. Romans 3, 31. Do we make void the Torah through faith? On the contrary, by faith we establish, uphold the Torah. Keep that in mind. That truth has to be the truth no matter what he's writing on. 2 Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is God-breathed. What was all scripture at the time this was written? The Torah, the Tanakh. The Tanakh, the Torah, is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for conviction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. Maybe some of our brothers and sisters are not complete because they have rejected two-thirds of the Bible and said it's been done away with and has no value today, and they cast it aside, and they're wondering why they are not complete. Because they're rejecting the God-breathed, inspired word of God. By traditions of men. They say Yeshua did away with all of that. Romans 7.12 The law is indeed holy. The commandment, holy, righteous, and good. In another place in Romans 10, the word is near us. Even in our mouths that we may do it. The word of faith that I preach. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. 
They said, who's going to go across to get the Torah? It's not across the sea. It's not on the mountain. Where's the Torah? The Torah is in your mouth that you might do it. Paul believed in a doing type of faith, not a hearing only. Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life in Messiah. That through that, so that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of Torah. Keep that in mind as we go through Galatians. Romans 7.22 For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. If the law is so bad and cursed and done away with, why would you delight in something that was cursed? Personally, I'm not going to delight in anything that's cursed. I'm going to get rid of it. Acts 25.8 Why he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews or against the temple, or against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Even the law of the Jews. He said, I haven't offended. Keep that in mind. First Timothy 1.8 But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Keep that in mind. Keep in mind as we go through Galatians, Matthew, what Yeshua had to say. Matthew 5.17 I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. The word literally means to fill to the fullest, to bring the fullest understanding and meaning. You do not fulfill something by breaking it. You fulfill it by bringing its full intent and measure of the one who gave the commandment. That's how you fulfill God's law. Some people say, well, now that he's fulfilled it, I say, oh, so you think now that he's fulfilled it because people's interpretation fulfilled it. He did it, so now you don't have to. So Yeshua came to fulfill the law so that you could break the law. Isn't that something weird about that? No, he fulfilled the law in the sense of bringing the full understanding and application and meaning of it. He says, not one jot or tittle shall depart. He says, he who teaches against the commandments shall be least in the kingdom of God. He who teaches least. He will be the least if he teaches against the commandment. So keep those things in mind. Every once in a while I'll remind you about it. Because if you have those as a foundational statement, when you go into Galatia, right away when you get to a verse that seemingly says the commandments are bad and been done away with and they're cursed, you're going to take pause. You go, hold on now. If I'm walking by faith, I'm to uphold the law. If I believe the law is a curse, then I'm going to uphold a curse? I don't think that's what it means when it says about being a curse or the works of the law. Keep that in your mind. So Galatians. We'll just get through a little bit of Galatians today. It was written around 48 AD, probably before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they had to make a decision of what to do with the Gentiles. And the reason why we say that, people have different opinions about that, but the reason why I hold to that is that all Paul had to do in dealing with Galatians say, don't you know the decision we made? We wrote the letter to you, what are you doing? But he doesn't do that. So it's believed that a lot of this took place before that. And also the issue related to that. Um, in Galatia, their community were mostly... Gentiles. They were Gentiles who had settled in the area. 
immigrated to the area around 270 B.C. among the Gauls, the Celts, and they moved to the area. And it's to that community that, you sh- that Paul goes and he brings the message. And they establish this community. They win them to the Lord. And so it's to that community that most of the people in Galatians Paul is dealing with are not Jewish people, but are Gentiles. Non-Jews who have embraced Yeshua as the Messiah. And he's dealing with that. So let's quickly get there. Galatians. Paul, apostle, not from men or through man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with him, with me. Apostle. Also, the word apostle means to be sent. Paul is saying, I'm sent. I was sent out. I didn't do this on my own. I didn't do it by my own desire. I didn't make myself an apostle. I didn't decide to build my own ministry. I was sent to you. Okay? And he makes it very clear that his sending was not from men or through man. Now he's thinking something because his earliest being sent was through the Jerusalem council, not of the believers in Yeshua, but the Sanhedrin, who gave him letters to go out and find Jewish believers in Yeshua and bring them back and have them killed. So he'd been sent out before with official letters, titled. But now he's saying, this sending to you guys is not from man, nor through man, but through Yeshua the Messiah. Not just anybody. He wasn't going to boast on Gamaliel that he trained under. He's boasting now in Yeshua, the anointed one, the Messiah. And God the Father who raised Yeshua from the dead. This is the foundation of my coming to you. That I'm here to tell you, and this is so important we get this, I'm here to put my emphasis on Yeshua. That by his authority, I am here to preach to you. By his authority, I'm here to proclaim. And he's the one that was raised from the dead. This is very crucial. We should never play down this. We should never make Yeshua simply an educated person who's a nice Jew who who was nice and learn it. No, he is the Jew that was raised from the dead. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. We should never let anybody strip that off of Yeshua. Once you take that away from Yeshua, he's just another Jewish guy. When he realized that he's the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the one who brings the kingdom of God, the one who's representative of the kingdom of God to Israel, and you recognize that, that he's the one that sent me, and my whole life has centered around the fact that he was raised from the dead by the Father. It's important. These are not words. Paul's just not trying to be cute here. And have a nice opening. How do I start this letter off? Oh, to the brothers and saints that is it? No. Words are very important to Paul. He doesn't mince with words. He wants them to understand these Galatians. He wants them to understand by what authority he came to them. And all the brethren who are with me. 
Now, some modern translations trying to be politically correct says all the brothers and sisters who are with me. But most translations don't say that. Actually, the word there doesn't mean brothers and sisters. It means brothers. Well, Paul didn't travel alone. Paul had an apostolic team. He had an apostolic team of brothers who were ministering. And, and they had ministered to Galatia. They moved on to other places. And he says, it's not only me writing to you, but the whole team. We're writing to you. The apostolic team is writing and establishing what we're about to say to you. It's not just Paul. It's all the brethren that are with me. They're with me. They're aligned with me. They are committed to this gospel that I'm preaching. And they're writing this as well. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Grace and peace. Grace being that unmerited favor that works in your life not only to bring forgiveness but to empower you to do the things that God has called you to do. Peace is to come to completion and fullness. The word shalom means to be complete. When you're not complete, you don't have shalom because something's missing. So he's saying the grace of God that will empower you not only for forgiveness, but empower you to walk in the ways of God. That's God's grace. And his fullness, shalom, that completes you. I speak that over you. Just like we say Shabbat Shalom. It's very powerful Simple phrase, but very powerful words. From God the Father and our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for our sins. Don't miss the emphasis of this. He's talking, he's not talking to people that he hasn't talked to before. He's talked to them before. He's given them the gospel. And he's laying that foundation once again that Yeshua, who gave himself for our sins, he's the one that completes you. He's the one that makes you right before the Father. Don't lose sight of that. Something I, I even as in being in the Messianic Jewish movement, we need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes people can get lost in their study of Torah and take Yeshua and say, we don't need him. We have Torah, we don't need Yeshua. And forget that he's the living Torah that became flesh. And without the living Torah that became flesh, that, that lights the light of every man that comes into the world, the living Torah that gives life to you, who died for you so you will be forgiven, if you try to approach the Torah apart from that, you will find yourself ending up in error. This is why I say it's important to approach it through new covenant eyes. Because that's where the grace is. That's where we see the fullness of that manifest. Not that there wasn't grace before. There's always been grace. Grace was always available, just people didn't always walk in it. It was there with Moses. Moses made it very clear. It's not across the sea. That's grace, man. It's not up on the mountain that you have to go up and get it. That's grace. He's talking grace. He's talking grace and he's talking faith. Where is it? It's near you. In your mouth that you may do it. 
These are grace and faith all over that. He calls it in Romans the word of faith. Too bad some people have run with it and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's reminding them that Yeshua came to deliver you from this present evil age. This is what this is all about. I marvel. I'm astonished. I'm amazed, not in a good way, but in a sad way, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Mashiach to a different gospel. Now he's given us, after all the greeting, after all the things of being delivered, after all the stuff that he speaks about, he's given the reason for why he's writing this letter. He has great concern. And his concern is one of astonishment. He said, how soon that you leaving what we gave you, and he says, for a different gospel. The word gospel is where we get our word evangel. It means good news. To evangelize is to go forth and proclaim good news. The gospel is good news. It's a message that God has given us something he's going to do that he wants us to proclaim to others. And so there was a gospel, there was a good news that had been preached by Paul to these Galatians who were former pagans and they had heard this good news, and now he says, I am shocked, astonished, blown away that you are leaving, literally deserting him who called you to follow after a different good news, which he later says is not even good news. Verse 2, but which is not another. He says, it's not really good news. They may call it good news, but it's not. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the good news, the evangel of Mashiach, his message, his good news. They want to pervert it, and they're troubling you. They're causing confusion concerning the foundation that we came to you, my apostolic team, we first called you out of paganism into the light of God, to the Mashiach who would be a light to the world, and you've come into that. He says, now there are those coming in who are perverting that message. It's not good news at all. But he's shocked that they're running after it. Then he says, strong warnings here, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. That's deep. 
That's deep. You are, in a sense, a spiritual father to these people. You laid the foundation. They're looking to you for truth. And you've gone on. And you tell them, even if we come back, the apostolic team, and bring another gospel than the foundation we gave you, let us be a curse. If we come back with a gospel message that's not aligned to what we've already given you, don't listen to us. There's a similar verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims a Yeshua other than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it way too easily. Wow. Don't listen to those people. Verse 9, we have said before, so I say to you again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than the one you receive, let him be a curse. That's strong words. This is not a small issue for Paul, this Galatia. This wasn't about just simple external customs tradition. There's a, you know, I've given you a couple of words. I've given you the word uh, halakha. There's another word that's used. It's called minhak. Minhak means customs. It's not necessarily binding upon you. We all have customs. I'm sure if we investigated everybody's Shabbat meals, we will see different practices of how people bring in. We will see similarities. If we were to look at everybody's Passover table, we will see some elements that we have embraced through the ages that have been passed down through rabbinical Judaism that we see are still good, and so we still do it. It's been done for 2,000 years, and so we go, hey, this is good. Why reinvent the mode? We'll have some of that. But I'm sure there'll be some things in your home that will differ from the home down the street that's celebrating Passover. Maybe the songs you sing, maybe the worship you give. Who knows? There will be customs that you have that others may not have. If you were to go visit another Messianic congregation, you may see customs that are not binding, but it's what they do for their community. Mike Rudolph and Mike Warner used to say, the rabbi is right in his own congregation for the traditions that are practiced. There is a certain authority that the leadership have that we can decide what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. That's very important. Keep that in mind. But this is not about the issue of the gospel. Paul's not dealing with customs. He's dealing with a serious issue that undermines the very faith of what it means to be a follower of Yeshua. Galatia is a serious book. It can't be dismissed simply saying, well, he just did away with Torah, and that's all it is to it, because there's too much said in Torah about rightfully studying his word, knowing his word, writing it in your heart. The very new covenant says, I will write my Torah on your heart. If the Torah is not a curse, he's writing a curse on our hearts? The people don't think this thing through when they make, they, they're just following a different gospel. And woe unto them for following a different gospel. 
in any direction that he goes. For I do, for do I now persuade men? Or God? Am I trying to please men or God? Or do I seek to please them, men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos of Messiah. I'm a servant by choice. I was, could be free, but I chose to love my master, got the, got the ring in my ear, and I am now committed to serve him forever. Paul is defending his calling. He's not looking for the approval of men or seeking to please them. This is the accusation that we found in Corinth. They accused, they questioned Paul's motive as an apostle, even questioning that he was an apostle. And here he felt he had to address it. He addressed the accusation here that he was, that they were saying he was seeking to please men and was seeking approval from men. His response is, if he was seeking man's approval, he would not be a bondservant of Messiah. Because serving Messiah has brought him persecution, stonings, beatings, rejection from his community. He said, if I was seeking to please men, I wouldn't be following Messiah. So he's defending to the Galatians who may not know everything concerning Paul, and he's defending that the reason why he was not seeking to please men because he is a bond servant to Yeshua. Verses 11 and onward, he is seeking to defend his apostleship. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by man is not according to man. Preached by me is not according to man. In other words, the good news I'm preaching you, and it's not my own. And it doesn't come from men. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. I'm not teaching men's traditions. I am teaching what I receive. I'm not trying to please men. And he's establishing all of this because he established his community and now they're straying away from the message he's given them. By the way, concerning the revelation of Yeshua. When Yeshua asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, they are saying, you're one of the prophets. Maybe even John the Baptist. Those who were believing in some form of reincarnation or something. They got an answer of what men were thinking. And then he got very personal, which is what God does. He says, Ben, who do you say that I am? 
He asked that to his disciples. Peter's the one that spoke up. He was always quick to speak up. He says, You are the Mashiach, the Son of the living God. Yeshua turned to him, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And upon this rock, the truth that Yeshua is the Mashiach, I will build my congregation, my community, my kihalot, my church. For those of us who believe in Yeshua, it's by revelation that you've come to that knowledge. You may think you figured it out. You may think that you were just a smart person. When I first read the New Testament writings, read it straight through when the Bible was given to me, I read all of that. What Yeshua did, his miracles, his signs. I was a very educated person. Very smart guy. And when I finished reading it, my eyes were still blinded to what I read. I tried to make Jesus a guru who had discovered how to manipulate the universe through the manipulation of the mind and being one with the body of ocean. So I had a philosophy, I had a tradition, and I tried to fit him into that. My eyes were blinded to the truth. It wasn't until I surrendered before the Father and got on my knees and had enough conviction that I cried out for him to come and change me. And it's through that that revelation was imparted me that I knew 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 that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Paul says, I didn't receive it from man. I received it by revelation. It was revealed to me who he was or who he is. He goes on, let's finish this out. You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the Kihalot, the church, the assembly of God beyond measure, and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And he would have been referring to the oral traditions. Talmud wasn't quite there yet. It was being passed orally. He was zealous for that. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, this is a phrase to say that this calling that God called him goes back to when he was a child. God had already planned it out. He knew about Paul. 
He knew about Paul before Paul was, when Paul was still just a gleam in his father's eye. He knew about him. And from his mother's room, Paul realized this calling on my life, God had already determined it. He had appointed the time. This is why I tell you that if you got somebody in your family that doesn't know the Lord, keep praying for them. Keep offering up those, that incense. At God's timing, he will bring it to pass. He says, and call me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Goyim, the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him there 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Messiah. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God in me. Paul is established with the Galatians how he came to this calling to preach and lay the foundation. And some of the things that affecting the Galatians, as we can see, were interpretations and understanding of the application of Torah. And Paul is letting them know, I know this. I'm a Pharisee. In fact, I knew it so well, it brought me to the place of trying to destroy Yeshua and his congregations. So I know what I'm talking about. I'm not lying to you. So this is important that we understand this. This book of Galatians is not a secondary issue for anybody, but especially for Messianic Jewish congregations. This is why so many people have come to me and asked me, Pastor, will you teach on the book of Galatians? I have questions. Some people, I was answering questions, well, I found myself answering the same questions over and over again. And I said, okay, I got to teach it. We got to walk through it. I'm going to end, the worship team can start to return. But I want to let you know where we're going with this. Our goal is to get through the whole book. I will take some detours. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I am going to take some detours. In fact, as the worship team goes up, I'm going to take a quick detour right now. Because one of the things that's important to us as a congregation that's positive towards Torah is that we have to give answers to people who confront us with saying, well, the Scriptures teach against that. And I want to let you know that that's not the case. So I'm going to give you one real quickly. See if I can do this very quickly. I like the music. Keep the music playing. My son usually does that to let me know it's time for me to quit. But I'm going to use it as a time to go for it. Very quickly. We'll just take one issue. How many of you ever been confronted? You're sitting at a family dinner or out with some people and somebody's trying to give you a piece of ham. 
And you very politely say, no, thank you. Oh, no, it's good. It's my mother's recipe. It's it's one of the best pieces of ham that you can have. You go, no, thank you. Well, you got something against ham? Well, I don't have anything against ham per se. I have something for my God who has defined for me what is food and what's not food. And I don't consider ham to be food. I don't consider it to be an animal that God says you can eat. It's not kosher. You don't, I don't eat that. And then they go after you. And they want to know why. And they have verses. They go to Mark 7. And they go, in Mark 7, it says Yeshua's disciples were passing to the field and they took some grain and they were eating it. And the Pharisees got angry. Yeshua. Why do your disciples break the the traditions of the elders? Didn't say break Torah, but the tradition of the elders that that they don't wash their hands before eating. And they don't mean just for cleanliness, but it was spiritual cleanliness. It says, the Pharisees believed that you became spiritually defiled unless you wash your hands a certain way. They had certain rituals and steps of how you wash your hands. Or else, even when you eat grains, which God allows you to eat, this, by the way, has nothing at all to do with meats. It's about grains. He said, the Pharisees taught you became spiritually defiled. Yeshua goes on and says, it's not what goes in the body that defiles a man and what comes out. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts and wickedness and these sort of things. These are the things that spiritually defile you. And then he makes this statement. He makes a statement about this food going in. And the literal translation says, this is verse 19 of Mark 7. Literal translation is purging all foods. Now some translations, like the NIV, the NAB, the RSV, say things like this. He declared all foods good. Or Amplified Bible says he was making and declaring all foods ceremonially clean. That is, he abolished the ceremonial distinction of the Levitical law. And that's how people interpret that in those translations. But I will submit to you, that's very poor translation. Especially in ones that say, and Yeshua declared all foods clean, because if you get any Greek interlinear, you will not find the words Yeshua there at all, or he. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. So when people try to throw that in your face, you say, first of all, it's not talking about meats. Yeshua wasn't declaring what food is. Torah has already done that. Number two, the verse that you're pointing to in 19 does not even have the word Yeshua in the Greek text underneath. And that's any Greek manuscript. It's not there. It is implied by the translators who already decided that the words Purging all meats or all foods must mean that Yeshua 
clean all food. So they throw the extra words in. Yeshua, or he, declared all foods clean. That's not even there. This is the one time that the KJV, King James Version, got it right. It just simply says, the food enters in you, therefore, purging all meats. Now, I have to get graphic to say what that's talking about. But purging all meats, all food, where does food go after you finish eating? It goes out of you. Purging. Pushed out. Gone. Yeshua is saying a very simple thing that everybody knew. When you eat food, it comes in and it goes out. Purging all meat. Pushing it all out. That's all he was saying. A very simple truth. He wasn't declaring foods clean. He was saying, no, look, when it goes in your body, it goes out of your body. It does not go in your heart and defile you. It does not make you unclean spiritually. See, people come with philosophies and traditions that have been passed down from one generation to another. And yet we have Peter, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, and many years have gone by, and he gets his vision of unclean animals and common animals and critters, and he's told by the vision, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, after all those years, being Holy Spirit filled, speaking in tongues, no Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean in my life. If anybody understood that Yeshua says, hey, all foods are now available, you can eat anything you want, all meats, all animals, you can eat them all, Peter should have understood that. Some say, well, that's what he was, God was trying to explain to Peter in Acts 10 and 11. God was trying to tell him, that's what this, that's what I'm trying to tell you, that now you can eat anything you want to. I am glad that Peter was a wiser man than some of the preachers out there today. Because the scripture says in Acts 10 that Peter pondered in his heart, what does this mean? And then this angel said, somebody's coming, guy by, coming from Cornelius' house. When they come, go with them. His Gentile shows up. Jewish people kept their distance from Gentiles. Gentiles did some unclean things. They didn't want to even have table fellowship with them. They may become spiritually defiled. But the Spirit said, go with them. So he goes with them, and he gets to Cornelius' house. And when he walks in, he sees all these Gentiles. And he said, an angel came to us. And there's his angel came to me and said, go ask for Peter. Have him come and give a message. He has something to say to you. And Peter sees it. And he starts to describe Yeshua. And he says, God has made it clear to me that the Gentiles who were considered common and unclean, that God was making them clean. How did Peter know this? Because he pours the Holy Spirit upon them while they're, while he's preaching. God pulls the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in tongues. And Peter's going, how did the Gentiles get our, the tongues that are promised to the Jewish people? 
How did they get the Holy Spirit that's promised to the Jewish people? And yet they have it. They haven't converted. They haven't become proselytes to Judaism. They haven't become Jews. They are still Gentiles, and yet the Spirit of God is moving through them. And Peter understands now the vision. It had nothing at all to do with food. It was all about that God was saying, I'm now bringing the Gentiles in. I'm making them clean. I'm making them holy. So these verses that people will use against you to say that God has done away with these things and you guys are making up traditions. It's not the case. We don't do what we do simply because we're trying to be Jewish. We don't do what we do to put on a, fa- a facade so we can trick the Jewish community into being a part of us. No, we're not ashamed of the good news of Yeshua, the Messiah. He's out front that we believe he's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we're not trying to trick anyone. We are very bold about the message. But we believe when it comes to halakha, the way we live, that the things that we choose to walk in, to be faithful to, is because we see it in the Scriptures. And we embrace it. And it might go in opposition to the larger body of Messiah at times. But that's okay. We love them anyway. Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. This is a message that may not be as Hebraic in nature as some that I've ever done before. But it's one that has developed in me. And as I said to you before I actually got the camera turned on, that I believe that if I had received this message back in 1993, when I was first pastoring, that I would have been a much better pastor. Because I would have seen people through the eyes of this message. Now, the way that this message came about was by a uh, a friend of mine gave me the uh through the a man named Lieutenant Dave Grossman, who wrote an article named Sheep, Wolves, and Sheepdogs. But through that secular article, God showed me something about what I needed to learn to to bring the secular into the scriptural. So it didn't take me long in reading the article. And if you'll go and Google sheep wolves and sheep dogs, you'll find this article. And you will find yourself in there real fast. As you're reading it, I hope you don't find yourself as a wolf. Because if you do, you're in trouble by the end of this message. You may find yourself as a sheep. You may find yourself as a sheep dog. Because if some things in that article make you uncomfortable... You can understand that you're a sheep in the sheep mentality. But if that article makes you uh, just think like I said last night, come on, let's go, let's get this thing going, let's get it done, you're probably a shepherd. Because God doesn't call us dogs. He's not going to put us into a category of a dog. He's going to put us into a category of a shepherd. So with that, we're going to go to Luke chapter uh, 10, starting in verse 1. 
And we start reading these words. It says, After this, Yeshua appointed 70 other Talmudim, or disciples, sent them on ahead in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, Be sure there is a large harvest, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest that he speed workers out to gather in his harvest. Get going now. Don't wait. Get going now, but pay attention. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money belt or a pack, and don't stop to schmooze with people on the road. I love that word. That's one of my favorite Hebrew words. You know, it's kind of like schlepping things around. I've schlepped things from all over the world now. That's not nearly as much fun as schmoozing. Now, schmoozing is this, uh, it's, it's kind of like hollow conversation. It's gossip sessions and really kind of worthless idle chat that we do as we walk through life. And so what Yeshua is telling the, these guys is, you're on a mission. I'm sending you out as lambs or little baby sheep among wolves, and, and you're not to take a money belt, you are not to take a pack, you're not to take your sword, you're not to take anything with you, but even though you have nothing as far as on your being, understand this, you are on a mission. Because God has appointed you to do something, you have purpose in your life. And because of that, you are not to, you are not to stop and smooze with people. Don't have idle contact, but find where God is leading you along the way, and when you get there, walk in with purpose. I relate a lot of things to my life and my children. Uh, God bless them. They, they have endured my illustrations throughout the years as I've used them many times to kind of illustrate something in Scripture. And one of the, one of those illustrations is my now oldest well my oldest son Stephen, who is in his second year of college now. Stephen uh, kind of was like his dad when he was very young. I was a very shy person, if you can imagine that. I was extremely shy. I was very quiet. Never said anything. That's why I just was saving it up for now. But Stephen was um, was very shy. And if I stopped for gas and handed him a $5 bill, which, you know, in that day would actually buy some gas, uh, if I handed him a $5 bill and said, go in and pay for it, he couldn't do it. It was just, I mean, it was just beyond him. And it was something I really had to work with him about to, uh, because Stephen had this, this way of just kind of walking around and he had his head down all the time. He kind of, you know, just like this, like a lot of teenagers do. And I'd look at him and say, Stephen, hold your head up. He'd kind of do this a little bit. My grandmother used to do that to me. She'd say, put your shoulders back. You know, she couldn't stand. You slouch around my grandmother. She'd come over there and hold you up, you know. So she got, I got tall enough she couldn't hardly reach me. But I, I'd do the same thing with Stephen. I'd say, hold your head up. Act like you're going somewhere. Dad, I'm just going to the bathroom. I know you're just going to the bathroom, but go with purpose. (laughs) 
See, I believe that each each person that is part of the family of God, you're a child of God. So what are you doing going through life schmoozing? You need to go through life with purpose. You need to hold your head up. Because no matter where you walk, the Bible says the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. So every one of your steps that you take, if you're living within by faith and obedience, every single step that you take is directed by Him. So why do you have your head down? If you're on a mission that God has taken... So it doesn't matter if you're going to the restroom. You're going with purpose. Wherever you go through life, you need to walk as a child of God. Hold your head up and act like you're going somewhere. Even if you're not, act like you're going somewhere. Well, Yeshua would tell them, to, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take a money belt. Don't take a pack. And why did He say that? I believe personally that He was teaching these disciples that you need to learn total and complete trust in the shepherd. You need to walk through this time period of life without anything so that every your direction, your your income, your provision, the food that you have, everything that you need for your spiritual life, for your emotional life, for your physical life, you need to start to understand where that comes from. You need to, lambs, you need to learn total and complete faith in the shepherd. You need to learn what it's like to be a sheep. But this would change. Because over in Luke chapter 22, in verse 36, there's a different tone to what Yeshua is saying. And he says, but now, and this is, uh, you know, a lot of time has gone by, a lot of training has gone by. And he said, uh, actually, I'm going to go up to 35. He said to them, when I sent you out without wallet, pack, or shoes, were you short of anything? He's reminding them. Reminding them of what it was like to be a little lamb before they have now grown up to be sheep. And he asked him a very direct question, so that not because he needed information, but he asked them for their benefit. And they said, No. That's right, we remember that time two or three years ago that you sent us out. I didn't have a dime with me. I didn't have a pack. I didn't have a sword. I didn't have anything with me. But I was taken care of. Every single thing that I needed in my life was provided in that day. And then Yeshua says something that we need to understand today. They answered, not a thing. He said, but now, you have a wallet or a pack. Take it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your robe to buy one. Things have changed in their lives. See, this is something that we must continually walk in. That what God said to you a year ago may not be what you need to be doing today. He changes. or Does He? No. no. He doesn't change. We are to change. 
Sometimes we get those Scriptures backwards and expect Him to do all the changing and I want to remain the same. He was telling the disciples, this is how it was two or three years ago, but this is how it's going to be from this point on. And the reason for that is this, you are no longer a little lamb. You are no longer called to be a sheep in the kingdom, but you have now to accept a promotion to become a shepherd under the shepherd. Now, before I go on, I want to explain a little bit more these three words that I'm using. Wolf, sheep, and shepherd. The wolf is one that seeks to do violence The wolf really has only one thing in his mind. That is to divide, conquer, and eat. And who is he trying to eat? The sheep. The sheep are the victims. The sheep are the victims that don't have any way to protect themselves. If you've ever studied, and I'm going to bring out some things about sheep. God calls us sheep. and All we as sheep have gone astray. If you start to understand about the life of a sheep, that's not a real big compliment. See, a sheep is a very intriguing character. When you look at him, uh, all he is, is is kind of a body to hold wool. Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, this big ball of wool here. And if you've ever noticed, wool doesn't float real well. So when that thing gets wet... It gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And a sheep, if it gets too heavy, how many of you watch Veggie Tales? How many of you aren't admitting that you watch Veggie Tales? Okay, I know, I know. Yeah, I got it. Good. You remember when the sheep were tipping over? Sheep tipping. You know, they just fall over. That's kind of how a sheep is. A sheep gets so heavy, they just tip over. And then they can't get back up because they have little short spindly legs. A sheep has absolutely no way of defending themselves. They have no claws. They can't bite real well. They can't run fast. They're, a sheep is a victim to any wolf that wants to come along. And they have no way to defend themselves to get out of danger except for the shepherd in their lives. And the shepherd is the one that is called to protect the sheep. It has the duty to provide their safety, their provision, everything that they need in order for them to live, to flourish, to multiply. The shepherd is called for one purpose. That is for that sheep. Now, when we start to think about the word shepherds. Most of us are going to put that into our church or congregation mindset and define it by how it's been defined in the past. Well, as someone who is a former pastor, I can tell you that as I have met pastors throughout the years, I have found very few shepherds. There are very few shepherds out there that are actually defending the flock. I find a number of people 
who are businessmen who are giving a sermon on Saturday or Sunday. I find CEOs, and I find entertainers. I find those that could care less about the sheep, all that they care about in a meeting when they stand up in front of the sheep is this, to see how much wool they can get from the sheep. Pastor, My pastor years ago said to me, Son, understand this. You can shear the sheep many times. You can only skin him once. He said, you need to understand that the people you're talking to are sheep. And you must understand your job as a shepherd is not to do harm to the sheep, but to protect them and give them an environment so that they can grow and they can flourish. But too many people today are standing up in pulpits as businessmen, as CEOs, as entertainers, and as wolves and charlatans. A shepherd, the title of shepherd, is not something that you can just put on your back. The title of shepherd must be earned. When I started pastoring in 1993, I was in a small town in northern Florida, and in that town, it was really funny because uh, I took over a church of about 14 people. Many of you know some of this story. And the church had been around for, I think it was right at 48, 49 years when I started pastoring. During that time, there had been 27 people that were called pastor in that church. 27 in 50 years, 48, 49 years. That's quite a few. A couple of them had never even made it after they got voted in. Two of them had committed suicide afterwards. A couple of them had been alcoholics while they were in the pulpit. And there was all kinds of things that had gone on. I didn't know any of that. I came in there just young and dumb. I left a little older, slightly smarter. But I walked in, absolutely, I didn't have any training in what I was doing. All I knew is that I had a love for these people. But it was, what was funny is that in that day, when, when you got there, you weren't called pastor. The people didn't call you pastor when you walked in the door, they called you preacher. And I had one lady, a wonderful lady that um, is just, she's on our prayer team, and I remember the first time that I was there was a homecoming, dinner on the ground. And she came up to me afterwards. She says, Preacher, I saved you a piece of cake. Well, she was on my top list right then now. Because, see, Kathy made this cake that was it's kind of a specialty in the South. It's this about 15 to 18 layer chocolate cake about this high. It has a layer that's about, it looks like a pancake and then chocolate frosting and another layer is about 15, 18 of these. Yeah, y'all getting ready for a lunch break, aren't you? <laughs> and she said, preacher, I saved you a piece of cake. And I said, I like you. So I went and ate that cake. Well, that title preacher kind of stuck with her and stuck with me. And so I became the preacher of Shady Sea Baptist Church. And she'd, people would come up and they'd call me preacher and Kathy always had a way of saying it. I knew where I stood in her book by the way she said preacher, in fact, because if I was in trouble, I remember one night I was, uh, I was delivering the message of Sunday evening service and afterwards, uh, she came up to me and she says, 
preacher? And when she said it like that, I knew I was in trouble. She said, preacher, I want to tell you something. Yes, ma'am. Now she's about this tall, but not too big around, but I was, there was a slight fear that I had when she said preacher in that tone of voice. And she's going to be watching this and laughing the whole way through it. But, uh, she says, I want to tell you something. I said, yes, ma'am. She says, you looked at your watch seven times tonight. She said, I want to tell you something. There's not a one of us in this room that care what time it is. She said, we're here for one reason, and that's to hear from God. If you'd looked at that watch one more time, I was going to come up and take it off your wrist. <laughs> she was going to do it too. She was going to do it. Well, I'll never forget the day that uh, we had gone through some blood, sweat, and tears together in trying to rebuild that congregation. And God was moving in the midst of us. And I'll never forget the day that she walked up to me and she says, Pastor. And I had taken a promotion that day. I was no longer preacher. But on that day I'd become pastor. I'll never forget that day. Because see, I had earned the right to be the shepherd for a group of sheep that God had given me to protect and to provide nourishment for. The term pastor, the term shepherd, can not be tagged upon a person, but those titles have to be earned. Most people standing on Saturday morning, Shabbat, on Sunday, they have no idea of what I just said because they've never earned the right to be a pastor. They've never earned the right to be a shepherd. All they have been is an entertainer a businessman, and that needs to change. I'd like to take this message a little bit more to the secular for a moment and show you how this actually works out in our lives, even outside of Scripture. We remember back to a couple of years ago, a hurricane coming into New Orleans. It was called Katrina. Now, I grew up in Florida. I pastored on the coast of Florida. I have been through more than my share of hurricanes. I know what they're all about. Katrina was extremely, uh, did some things that nobody knew it was going to do. And then the, the levees broke in New Orleans and caused a disaster that is still being debated over today and many, many deaths along the way. Someone told me recently that in the time, right after the time of Katrina, within the first few moments after Katrina, that approximately 15% of the people resorted to violence. There were wolves. We've seen that as power outages, blackouts, all kinds of things have happened over the years in America. And what's the first thing that people do? It's a crazy thing. The power's out. Let's steal a television. Where are you going to plug it in? You know? Wolves are violent, but they're not the smartest characters around. But 15% of the people, it's estimated, resorted immediately to violence. 15% of the people resorted to action. They said, 
something's happened here, something's wrong, we need to do something about it. I'm not waiting for the government to come in and take care of me. I'm going to take action and get myself and my family out of this situation. That's a shepherd. The other 70% wandered aimlessly throughout the town. Eventually, they would listen to the loudest voice and they would follow that voice. No matter if they were a wolf or a shepherd, those 70% that were wandering aimlessly, these 70% who were sheeps, they were sheeple. They wandered around and followed the voice, a voice that would take many of them to their death. As they would go to the dome, they would go to various places, there was no food, there was no water, they had not prepared in any way and they would be taken to their death. Why? Because they were sheep. They had a sheep mentality. We need to understand some things. Very defined things today. There are wolves in the world. Now, if you are a sheep, or you have been a sheep, one of the ways you can tell that you are a sheep is that you try to deny this truth of the world. You try to deny that there are wolves around. You have a hard time watching the news on the television because you just don't want to see those things. I just wish that, that would go away. And see, that's the mentality of the sheep that says, if I just turn it off, it won't be there. Well, you can turn it off all you want, but the wolves are still going to be there. You can put your head in the sand as an ostrich does, and it's not going to keep the wolf from biting you in whatever's sticking up. See, a wolf wants to deny, or excuse me, a sheep wants to deny that there is violence and that there are wolves in the world. And in fact, they want to deny that the wolves are today thriving and becoming greater in number. The wolf thrives on and are strengthened by violence. That's why when we see on the news a shooting or something that happens, the first thing that the police start to look for is copycats. Because a wolf will cower sometimes in a corner until they see that a wolf, another wolf got away with something. And they are strengthened by the violence and success of that wolf. Where they now go forth with a new boldness and new strength and commit the same thing. Wolves also strive on weakness. Sheep or a very easy target. In Africa, if you watch a lion, a lion will look for the animal that has some kind of a defect or an injury or a handicap or something, and he'll go after that one. The wolf does the same thing. That's why a wolf will normally not go after somebody that's six foot two and weighs a couple of hundred pounds. A wolf will go after an older lady that's walking with a cane. Go after a man, an older man, who has, uh, who is in a wheelchair or something, or is having a hard time getting around, because wolves are cowards when it really comes down to it. 
Wolves thrive on weakness. Wolves thrive on surprise. They thrive on looking around, seeing who's unaware of their surroundings. Because see, a sheep is unaware of what's going on around them. They thrive on that sheep having its head down all the time and coming in when nobody is expecting it. We saw this. We've seen it in the natural through the years In at 9-11. Nobody was expecting. We have seen that through the, through the 70s that I lived through hijackings of planes, but no one had ever flown one into a building. Nobody was aware of what was going on. The wolves were able to take them by surprise because nobody had ever done that before. We saw it in Columbine as a bunch of very deranged students walked into a high school with guns and slaughtered many people. We saw it recently at Virginia Tech as one man who walked in with a couple of guns and a lot of ammunition. Folks, this is a controversial thing that I'm about to say to you. It's controversial depending on the state that you live in or the country you live in. But I want you to understand this. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. You know, when Cain killed Abel, it is said in some of the Hebraic writings that Cain took up a rock and crushed Abel's head with that rock. God did not put a three-day ban or waiting period on rocks after that because God understood it wasn't the rock that killed him. It was the human being that had the rock. Controversial, yes, but it's a true state. Virginia Tech, I'll say a little bit more about that in the in a few minutes. When you watch the news this, these days, it's it's an incredible thing. Uh, years ago, remember when CNN came on the air? 24-hour headline news, and you wondered, how in the world are they going to have news for 24 hours? And now we have CNN and MSNBC, and we have Fox News, and we have all of these news channels. And as I am in my home, and I my uh, summer offices are downstairs in the basement, my office is upstairs, and I'm back and forth in the living room, and I got to go to the kitchen and to the refrigerator, you know, and I can I can see the TV, and it's like it used to be you wondered how they would ever fit all this news on the air, and now it's like somebody needs to come out with breaking news network because there's so much is breaking on a on a moment by moment basis today. Now I know that a lot of it is just not news. But there is, there's some that is news there, and it's kidnappings and all the things that are going on, and we only see the things that come to a national level. I was just in Colorado Springs at, uh, doing our, our daughter's, uh, wedding, and she told me that there have been, this year there have been 14 murders in Colorado Springs. Those things don't make the news. See, the wolves are, are thriving today on the violence. The wolves are thriving because sheep are unaware 
Sheep are walking around, and a natural sheep goes through his day something like this. He gets up in the morning, stretches a little bit, shakes off the wool, and puts his head down and starts to graze the rest of the day. The sheep will go through the whole day never looking up to see what is around him. But all he does is trust that shepherd to protect him, keep his head down, and continue to find little blades of grass. And that's his whole day until he comes back to the sheep pen at night. He always keeps his head down, grazing, and is a very easy victim of any wolf that comes along if the shepherd is not looking. Now a sheep, as I mentioned earlier, has no defenses of his own. He doesn't have a, uh, he doesn't have claws, he doesn't have sharp teeth, he can't run, he has really no way of getting out of the way of an oncoming wolf. Today, we live in a society, especially in America, in Europe where I travel, that society has, is trying its best to put upon the, the people of this country, of Europe, a sheep mentality. If you don't believe me, all you have to do is after Shabbat is over, there is a Walmart here in Cedar Rapids. I know that. I've been to it. And you can go to Walmart anywhere and you can see the sheep mentality. It's very simple. You don't even, you just walk around and you can see it. Uh, the other day I was in Walmart and I was back at the back right, which is where the, the dairy products are. You know, it doesn't matter what city you're in, you know where things are in Walmart. And I was going back there to grab some milk and I saw this sheep coming toward me. Now it was a sheep that happened to be a, a lady sheep. She was about five foot five and she had her hands on the cart. She had her purse in the cart, which is another sheep thing. Purse in cart open and nobody has, she doesn't have a grasp on it. And she's walking around and in, in Walmart, what we do is if we see these people. Now a sheep has its head down all the time. Now you notice this in Walmart that they walk around and when they come to the end of the aisle, they put their head down to look at their list. Oh, excuse me, and run right into everybody. Well, after they got their head down, they go around to the next aisle, and then the the food isn't down on the floor, so they got to look up. And you see the sheep walking around going with their cart. And this lady was back in the dairy section, and she was a sheeple, and she was had that cart. You know, I'm standing there, and she just. Like she's never seen food before. <laughs> Boom! And ran right into me. And I looked at her and I, she said, Oh, I'm sorry. I said, I saw you coming. I said, Are you, are you driving today? She said, <laughs> She said, Yes, I am. I said, I'm going to leave before you do. <laughs> I make it a game, see? I watch sheep. I love to, I, I love to mess with sheep these days. And I, I had a, 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 a another lady. It's not always ladies because guys are, are they can be sheeple too. But I had another lady that uh, she ran right into me in Walmart with her shopping cart. And I looked at her husband. I said, "Is she driving?" He said, "Yes, she is." 
I said, I'll see you later. And I took off. And he stood there and just started to cackle. And I've done that. I, I just have a real fun time with it. But you see, if you look around you, you see the sheep mentality when you walk into a store. The people don't have a clue where they're at. They don't know where they are at any time. They're just walking around. They locked that car. And how many people have you seen walk out into the parking lot of, of Walmart or Kmart or even Home Depot guys, and they're walking around going like this, hitting the remote, trying to find out. <laughs> I heard of a lady that was actually walking around in the parking lot. This is a true story. I don't have to make things up. She was walking around in the parking lot hitting the button for the trunk release. Because she said, whichever trunk opens is my car. <laughs> That's a sheep. That sheep mentality. They don't know where they are. Don't know who's around them. And we will cover this this afternoon as we go further into these, into these teachings. Now the same thing happens on Sunday morning, on Shabbat morning. It happens in congregations. It happens in churches. You'll have people that will walk in and be handed a bulletin. At the door, they have somebody that shakes their hands, hands them a bulletin, and they walk in. No, excuse me. Pardon me. Where's my seat? This is the one with my seat and with my name on it. They have no idea who's around them. They sit down and start reading the bulletin until somebody comes out and tells them to look up. Pray. Look up. Hymnal. Sing. Look up. Take notes. Up. Get your wallet. Share sheep. Back over here. Look down. Look up. Pray. Stand up. Leave. Bulletin down. Walk off. Same thing happens. We have been indoctrinated and our children today are being indoctrinated by the school system into a sheep mentality. We've got to get out of that, folks. Mindless. Just nod to whatever is said. It doesn't matter. We don't think for ourselves anymore because sheep don't think for themselves. They just take whatever is being said by whatever verse is there. But see, David said in Psalm 23 that the shepherd prepares a table before the sheep. The shepherd understands that I've got to go before the sheep. I've got to clean out the poisonous things. I've got to, as, as Todd was saying, that when they do some bailing there and get some goats, they've got to pull the milkweed out because it'll kill the goats. There are things that you also have to take out that the sheep are poisoned, they are poisoned by. And a good shepherd understands that I've got to protect these sheep that are given within my care. I've got to go before them. I've got to prepare these things because sheep are going to follow sheep. They're not going to follow and just and, and think for themselves, but a sheep mentality is this, that wherever the sheep in front of me is going and whatever they're eating and whatever they're taking part in, that's what I'm going to do. I watched a video not too long ago about a gentleman who had gone to the Middle East. He wanted to understand Psalm 23. And so he went to the Middle East and he actually became a shepherd for a few weeks. And he said it was the most intriguing thing that he had ever done. 
He said one of the things that happened was that you know in the Middle East you have these wadis, these these crevices uh, that that are formed by the water running down, and in these washes is what we called them in Arizona. And he said I watched over and over again through the time that I was shepherding as a sheep would get their mind going in one direction, following the grass, you know, just walking along like this. And all of a sudden there would be a little bit of a wadi there, a, a, a washed out area with a crevice. He said the sheep would just walk out there following the grass, eating the grass, and go plunk right over the side. And would actually, their head would go right down into that crevice like this. And they're stuck because they're full of wool and they can't go anywhere. So he's just sitting out there going, this is bad. This is bad. Somebody come get me because this is bad. Hey, hey, that's the way it goes, folks. Well, sometimes I watch the video or listen to myself and I say, I can't believe I said that, you know. But he said, what happens is even, 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 even crazier is the sheep behind him. The sheep behind him goes along and he's been eating what grass this one didn't. He just eats along and he falls off the same thing, but his nose doesn't fall into the crevice. <laughs> his nose falls right in the, you know, back end of the sheep in front of him. He said, I've stand there and watch a sheep after sheep just boom, boom, right over. One, you know, nose to rear, nose to rear. That's how it was going. He said the, 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 the most frustrating thing for the shepherd was trying to get the sheep out of this thing. He said they'd go out there and you get a sheep out and get him stuck back up here on level ground, but he just had this mindset, you know. He just boom, and back in he'd go. And it'd take a couple of them, okay, you hold the sheep back and I'll continue to get him out of this crevice that they've gotten themselves into. Sheep. Just follow one another. A friend of mine uh, is is a uh, he's in South Carolina, and a number of years ago he was on his honeymoon and he took his wife to a farm in New Zealand. Now you'd have to know him to understand that that would be where he would take his wife is to a farm in New Zealand for his honeymoon. But uh, he said one morning I was I was doing this message. I was I was just putting it together. He said I got to tell you something. He said, one morning we were at this farm, and he said we got there. Uh, we we went to breakfast at is a bed and breakfast. He said, we got there for breakfast, and the farmer looked at me and he said, "I got something I really don't want to do. Uh, I've got to do Monday." He said, "I've got to I got to kill my all my sheep." He said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Well, at that time sheep were just you couldn't give them away, literally." He said. I've, I have a hundred head of sheep. And he said, I've taken them to the auction and he said, I, I tried to sell them for two dollars a piece and nobody'd buy them. He said, I dropped the price to a dollar a piece and nobody'd buy them. I dropped it. He said, I'll give them to anybody that'll take them and nobody'd buy them. Nobody'd take them. He said, he finally got to where he said, I will give anybody two dollars a piece to take my sheep because I don't want to kill them. He said he could not even pay someone to take them. He said, so Monday morning I have to go out and I have to kill a hundred sheep. And Jerry said, 
So this farmer said, well, that must be a very difficult thing. He said, oh, no, it's not hard at all. He said, in fact, I've already got the hole dug with my tractor out in the back. He said, all I have to do is bring one of the sheep over there, stand him next to the to the hole, and the rest of the sheep will come right with him. He said, and I'll shoot one, and he'll fall into the hole, and another one will come and look. He said, a hundred sheep will fall right in the hole, one after another, one after another, until all of them are gone. You know, this happened during the time of the Holocaust. Recently, I was in Belgium, and I was able to go to a... Uh, there was not a concentration camp in Belgium, but there was a barracks that they brought people, the Jewish people, into. Very interesting. In, in Belgium, uh, they did not have a passport as they did in, uh, in Germany that said Juden, or Jew. So they really didn't know who was a Jew in the in the area of Belgium. So the way that they found out who was a Jew, you're going to love this, is they talked to the meter reader. The meter reader. Because the meter reader knew the different lifestyles of the people. He knew what was happening. As he would come and read that meter, he would also see what the family was doing. And so they went and talked to the meter readers and they found out who was a Jew and who wasn't. And they started sending letters to these Jewish people and saying, there is work up north. If you will come to the train station, if you will come to this barracks, and you will bring, these are the things that you must bring. You have to have a pack with you or some kind of a bag. You have to have extra clothes and these items. Come, you, you put those items and you are to report to this barracks for processing on this date at this time. We will then put you on a train and we will take you north and there will be work up north. So these people, oh, the government's going to help me. <laughs> and so they would, Pack their things exactly like they were told. Bah. And they would, they would then take those things to this barracks. They would show up for processing. The person that led me through this barracks was actually his parents had gone to that barracks. He showed me, he said, see that room right up there? Second or third floor, left hand side? He said, that's where my parents were. I believe that he said that his mother was pregnant with him during that time. I, I can't remember that exactly. But he sat there and told me, that's the room that my parents were taken to. He said that the people would be taken from there, they would be processed, they would be put on boxcars. And during the time of the Holocaust, there were 26 transports that went north from Belgium. Those 26 transports with nine to 1,200 people per transport were taken to Dachau and to Auschwitz and to various places, where at that time they would be taken off the trains. They would have their belongings. There would be a guard standing there that would look at the people coming to them and say, you go that way, you go that way, you go that way, you go that way, separating the people. Interesting enough, this way, you were allowed to live and stay in the concentration camp. If you went this way, you were told to undress. You were handed a bar of soap so you could take a shower, but the shower would never have water come out of it. The shower would have poisonous gas coming from it. 
and you would be put to death. Sheep that were led to the slaughter. A number of years ago, in our own country, in New York City, on a subway, people were heading to work one day. They were sitting there reading their books, newspapers, and a couple of thugs got onto a subway. They had guns. And they'd walk down the subway cars, and they'd go to the first person and start taunting them a little bit and shoot them. They go to the next person and taunt them and shoot them. One after another, right on down the street, the, the subway car. And nobody ever got up. Nobody ever tried to escape. Nobody ever tried to do anything to defend the other people. All of those people on that subway car against two. Yes, they might have had guns. But when you have two against fifteen, somebody is going to get in there. But nobody did. Why? Because they just sat there and went, Ah, I'm a sheep. The wolf is going to stop before he gets me. The wolf didn't stop. Because the wolf is energized by the victim. The victimization of the sheep. 9-11-2001. None of us will ever forget it. I believe that those images of planes flying into the World Trade Centers should be shown on the television every single day. But instead, because we have a media that desires for us to be sheep, we cannot show those anymore. Because that was just something that happened then, but will never happen again. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, it's not over. It's not over. And you need to understand the mindset of Islam is one of patience. The mindset of Islam is that we will be patient until the right moment. It is not over. There's a song that one country singer says, Have we forgotten? And the answer is yes. America, the sheep mentality, has forgotten that Islam is an enemy. And it's not just radical Islam. It's the Quran. And anybody that says that the Quran is a peaceful book hasn't, uh, has not read it in its own trans, in its own language. The Quran that is read in the United States and translated in English is not the same Quran as is read in Arabic. People that don't understand that yes, you may be a Muslim, and you don't agree with that fanatic stuff that they're doing. If you're Islamic, and at the time of jihad, when the war is actually raged, if you don't join in, you are killed before anybody else. There's no such thing as moderate Islam. The whole religion is fanatic. And there are people that have been deceived by a religion of hate. Those statements, I say them, I look in a camera and say them and understand that those statements will probably one day come back to haunt me. But i got to stand up here and tell you the truth before it's too late. Because I want people to come out of the sheep mentality. Now, at the end of this message, you find yourself as a sheep. It's really okay. I would like to see everybody become a shepherd. But I know enough to understand that not everyone is going to be a shepherd. 
Because if everybody is a shepherd, then there's no sheep. And if there's no sheep, then we can't have more sheep. Because, you know, our old mindset, well, the pastor is supposed to do those things. He's supposed to go out and witness. He's supposed to evangelize. Folks, when a shepherd gives birth to a sheep, it's abnormal. Mm -hmm. Sheep give... I got their attention in the back. Sheep give birth to sheep. So not everybody is going to be a shepherd because we need the sheep in order to have somebody to shepherd. So if you are a sheep at the end of this message, it's okay, but I will have some final words for you before we're finished. But today I want to talk for a few moments to those that from the moment I began this message, something was stirring inside of you. Since I've been talking, there's something inside of you that's just been churning. I want to talk to you directly for a few minutes to the shepherds. You need to make Luke chapter 10 a part of your life. You need to read those words because as a shepherd, you must never forget that you are totally reliant upon the shepherd. There is nothing that you can do in your own strength. You cannot train enough. You cannot have enough martial arts or any of those things in your life to be able to defend the sheep the way that God desires for them to be defended. You must understand that your directions, that your strength, that your every move, that your every step is ordered by a shepherd that is above you. You must also remember what it was like to be a sheep. That's why Yeshua sent them out without a pack, without a money belt, so they could understand that total reliance and they could relate to what life was to be like as a sheep. A shepherd must always understand and remember what it was like to be a sheep. I can tell you the reason this message has made such an impact on me and the reason I wish I had understood this in 1993 is because since I, this message has become a part of my life, I look at the congregations I'm talking to in a different light. When people come to me at a table and they start talking to me, I look at them and I, I'm always looking for wolves. But I look at them and I, I, I understand pretty fast if they're a sheep or a shepherd. And if they're a sheep, I'm going to talk to them different than I am a shepherd. I'm going to talk a little bit more direct to the shepherd. I'm going to talk a little bit more gentle to the sheep. Remember, the calling and ability that you have as a shepherd is not your own, but it comes from Him. You need to go back and read John chapter 10, verse 7, which talks about that Yeshua said, I am the door. And He is teaching us that yes, He is the door, but He's also giving shepherds a, an instruction for their own life. For see, when the sheep are brought in at night, they're brought into a pen, and then the shepherd lays himself down in the doorway and becomes the door not only so that the sheep can't go out, but so that nothing can come in. The sheep can't protect themselves. So the shepherd must understand that you are at times to become the door to stop the wolf 
from coming in. This was no more, no better illustrated than the, at the time of Virginia Tech when a 70-something-year-old Holocaust survivor heard shots in the hallway. There were many young men in that room that day that were much more athletic, much more able to do the job, but they were all sheep. And it was the shepherd, a 70-something-year-old Holocaust survivor that stood up and became the door. He stood in the door and said, get out of here. He protected the sheep that day, and in fact, did what Yeshua talks about in John chapter 10. He became the door and gave His life for the sheep. The shepherd must remember that at some time, you may be called to give your life for the sheep. I called my son Stephen a couple of days, or the day after Virginia Tech, and I said, How's, how's the conversations down there? He said, well, Dad, it's been pretty interesting. He said, um, I got in a conversation today in, in our English class about Virginia Tech. And, of course, in college, most of, most of the kids are sheep, you know? So they're blaming the gun. They're blaming the gun shop. They're blaming the, the gun maker. They're blaming the people that made the bullets. They're blaming everybody except for the person that pulled the trigger. He said, I stood up and said a few words, and he wasn't accepted real well. He said, but the, the, the teacher, who was not as much of a sheeple, came to his rescue, and he said he kind of sided with me, and he said, um, it, it turned out okay, Dad. And I said, Stephen, what, uh, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? He said, Dad, I've, I've run this over this scenario over in my mind just all day long since it happened. He says, I've, I just keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it. And he said to me on the phone, he said, Dad, I have to tell you, I thought I'd told the story enough I'd be able to get through it. Uh, I guess I haven't. He said to me, he said, Dad, as I've run through it in my in my mind, I've come to the conclusion I could have never run from the bullets. I'd have had to run to them. Yeah, I've been proud of my son for a lot of years. Don't know if I've ever been as proud of him as I was that day. It scared me. It scared me. Because I understand the consequences of raising a kid like that. Come to find out that I've raised three shepherds in my family. Yeah. No greater, no greater compliment could my kids give me than to be, than to grow up and be shepherds instead of sheep. I understand the consequences of what he said. But see, that's a shepherd mentality. Because a shepherd doesn't away from trouble. A shepherd runs to trouble. Because it's the life of the sheep. It's a danger. You gotta see things through God's power. I told you about 20 transports 
27, 26 transports that left from Belgium and went north with nine to 12,000 Jewish people, 20,000 in all, that went to their, many of them to their death. But in Belgium, there was a small group of people led by one person who went to the government and said, this needs to stop. And of course, the government didn't give them any help. And so this person found an old revolver, one gun. I don't know where he found it, how he found it, but he found an old revolver with, with bullets. And him, and he decided to, to go to some of his friends and they devised a plan. And against the whole government, against the whole Nazi regime, these guys went out and one of them stood on the tracks with a lantern and waved the train to stop. And when the train stopped with one gun and the power of God, they stormed that train and saved 200 people because they saw things through God's eyes. See, Gideon was a sheep. Mighty man of valor. Who are you talking about? And eventually, he would take a bunch of other sheep. And he would become the shepherd over that group that would not see things through the eyes of man, but would say with a, with a torch in one hand and a shofar in the other hand, let's go get them. I don't care if it is 300 to some however many thousand. Let's go. Let's do it. We can do this because of the one who has called us. Shepherds need to learn to walk, to work together. And this has been a problem. Shepherds have become a little too much. This is my little flock and that's your little flock. And if I can, I'm going to steal some sheep from your flock. That's not shepherd talk. That's wolf talk. See, shepherds need to learn that there are other folds. There are other flocks of sheep and we must work together as shepherds to protect all of the sheep, not divide them. Now, shepherds, sheep will not always like you because you remind them of the wolf. A shepherd reminds the sheep that there is violence in the world. And shepherds don't want to see that. They don't want to be reminded of those things. If you go back and study what happened at Columbine, there were armed policemen in Columbine. And there had been a a, um, a movement by some of the students and the parents to take those armed policemen out of Columbine because those policemen reminded the sheep that there was wolves in the world, reminded them of violence, and those people did not want to be reminded of violence. Now, those same people, if, the, if a smoke detector had, had malfunctioned, would have, it would have been all over the news because that's something we need to take care of is that smoke detector. But taking care of the smoke detector, they forgot about all that was going on around them and actually tried to take the policemen out. 
It is probable that those policemen that were in Columbine were not liked. Probably the students never really said anything. They never walked up to him and said, you know, I really appreciate you being here. How many of you have ever walked around and you saw a policeman and you said, you know, I'd just like to, you know, I appreciate you. You know? Because sheep don't appreciate shepherds all the time because sheep remind them, shepherds remind them of the violence. But it is recorded that at the time of Columbine, when the SWAT team came in, what kept them from doing their job is the sheep that were clinging to them. They were literally having to pull the sheep off of them. Because see, the sheep are scattered all over the place with their head down looking toward the grass. But when the wolf comes in, every single sheep in the fold tries to get behind the shepherd. And in the day of Columbine, that's what they did. Shepherds, you must, you must remember that if the sheep doesn't like you, don't take it personal. It's just their mentality. Today, there are many natural sheep in the, or shep, wolves, excuse me, there are natural wolves that are out there. There's violence. There's also spiritual wolves. There are spiritual wolves that will try to come in and divide your fellowships. Will try to divide your family. Will try to divide husband and wife. Separate children from their parents. There are wolves out there that are in sheep's clothing. There are also wolves that are in shepherd's clothing. And we must find them out. Shepherds, you're being raised up today. You're being raised up for a purpose. And I want to say very direct, we're a small group that's gathered here today. Got a lot of people watching. If you're a wolf, there's shepherds coming after you. If you're a wolf, your time of being able to do violence to the flock is coming to an end. Because there are shepherds being raised up today they are going to hunt you down and they're going to hurt you. So wolf, if you're a wolf, the best thing for you to do is just to go away. Find somewhere else to feed because the shepherds are being raised up to take care of you. Now, the majority of people that will listen to me are sheep. I know that. That's okay. Be who you're called to be. If you're called to be a sheep, don't try to be a shepherd. Leave the shepherding to the ones that are called to be shepherds. You be a sheep and you do what sheep are supposed to do. You go out there and you produce wool and you uh, you multiply the flock. You do what you're to do and you give the the job of the shepherding to the shepherds. And it's okay. But learn to walk as a sheep with purpose. What I want you to do if you're a sheep is to quit walking around with your head always looking down. Always looking for that next blade of grass. What I want you to do is remember this, that though you are a sheep, you are God's sheep. 
And because you are God's sheep, you are called with purpose in life. So I don't care if you're going to Walmart or if you're going to the restroom. Hold your head up and walk as a sheep with purpose. Get your head up. Walk around like you're going somewhere. Because you're a sheep that's been called by God with a mission. Learn to walk with purpose. Learn to appreciate, listen to, and trust the shepherds that are around you. This is very, very important. I do not want you to miss this point. Learn, sheep. Learn to trust. Learn to appreciate. And learn to listen to the shepherds that God has given you in your life. I was told last night about something that happened recently to somebody here. I haven't heard the whole story yet. I I came in this morning and Mark was going to tell me a little bit more. And I want you to tell me the rest of the story. I hope I get the high points right. My my mind when I walk in here this morning, my mind's in a different place. But uh, we're going to have a more com- little bit more conversation later on this. But the story, the part that I was told is that they were camping. And they got caught in, in a tornado. And what hit me, and what I heard out of the whole story is this. That Mark said, follow me. And Lori and, his, and the children followed you know she had an option when Mark said follow me she had an option as the nurturing person that a mother is to say wait a minute those these are my little children I'm going to make the decision here I'm the one that's going to take care of these kids. I need to look around and see what to do. But instead, what she did is she followed the shepherd that God had given her. And because of that, you did not listen to a story about them in the news in Cedar Rapids. Because they followed the shepherd that God had given them. Ladies, you need to learn this. Men, you need to be the shepherd God has called you to be. You need to be that shepherd over that little flock. Whoever God has given you to shepherd, you need to learn about them. And you need to develop in your life a an attitude of walking through life in such a way that they learn to trust you. So that when a difficult time comes, when something happens, and you say, follow me, Nobody asks a question, but they just do it. There was a man who I read about this morning. He was a police officer. His, uh, he, he started out walking a beat, eventually became the chief of police. And he said he taught his wife and his family two words, stay, go. Now some of you would say, well, I'm not a dog. No, you're not. But you need to listen to the shepherd that God has given you. He said he taught his wife and his family, if I say stay, you don't move. You don't move. In fact, you just play dead. Stay where you are. 
And if I say go, you grab my belt loop and you go with me wherever we're going. And that's the way he taught his family because he was a shepherd and he understood the dangers that are around in life. You can take these natural principles and you can put them into the spiritual realm and they work just as easy right across the board. Sheep, don't be afraid of shepherd talk. You may find yourself in a situation that you may find yourself this afternoon, in fact, in a situation where a couple of shepherds get together. You may hear me and Mark or Todd or we're over in the corner and we're little shepherd talk. And you may hear us start talking about how we're going to do some things in the natural or the spiritual. And, and even in this preparedness course we're going to be going through, you're going to hear these things. And some of this is going to be shepherd talk. And you're going to kind of back away a little bit. And I've had people actually uh, that have we've started some shepherd talk. And they've actually gotten up and left. And that's okay. That's okay. If the shepherd talk makes you uncomfortable, it's okay. But do not look at the shepherd and say, I just don't like them. You need to appreciate that shepherd talk. Because that shepherd talk is being done to save and protect you. So appreciate shepherd talk. Shepherds, learn to rely on the shepherd. Fall in love with the sheep. You never, if, if you ever get, find yourself not loving the sheep, you need to back off for a little while. You gotta fall in love with the sheep to the point that you will give your life for them. Accept them for who they are. Don't take a sheep and try to make them into a shepherd. That's something that only God can do. If they're a sheep, thank God for them and accept them for who they are. Make up your mind now that you'll give your life for them. The time is now, shepherds, to make up your mind. It's not then. In the time of Katrina, many males, I'll put it that way because they weren't men. They weren't fathers. They weren't husbands. They were just males. Many males left their families behind to suffer and die in the time of Katrina. That's not a man. That's not a shepherd. That's not a husband. That's not a father. The shepherds must learn that you may need to give your life for the sheep. You need to learn how to work together with other shepherds. And shepherds are sometimes not the easiest people to to get along with because we're a little independent at times. But we're going to have to learn how to work with each other. Never forget who you're called by and what you're called to. And one last point. If you accept the job as shepherd, from this point until the day that Messiah comes, you never get a day off. Your day is off or over. You never get a time in which you can say, well, I'm just going to sit back for a while and do nothing. You know who the shepherds are? I can always tell who they are. They're the ones that as I'm talking throughout the day, 
you've watched me, but you've also been looking around the room. Because you know that it may be Shabbat, but you never really get a day off. You're watching. Somebody new walks in the door and you'll watch and you'll see and you'll see if they try to kind of take a sheep over into the corner and take them away with some other teaching. You'll always be protecting because see the sheep, they don't know any better. And so the shepherd understands that from this moment on, I no longer have a day off. I must always be on duty to protect what God has given to me. Well, the rest of this series is going to be about how do we prepare ourselves. This has been about the emotions, about how do we deal with some things inside of us. And now we're going to go more to the physical aspects of preparedness. I think we'll have some fun along the way. Talk Radio's Red-Headed Stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before.